social change. UMBC. Reach together. More at leader.umbc.edu. Advanced Business Systems, who provide office technology, IT, and managed print services to help your team share information more securely and your entire organization become more efficient and effective. AdvancedStuff.com slash WAMU. This is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University in HD at 88.5 WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, and we're live at WAMU.org. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tomorrow's Veterans Day, and we're saluting our fellow Americans who've served in the armed forces with perhaps the greatest insight into the mind of a soldier in all of American literature, Stephen Crane's classic, The Red Badge of Courage, from the NBC University Theater, and with comedy from Alan Young. And believe it or not, with science fiction from X-1 about a future serviceman re-upping for a tour of duty on the moon. And there's another celebration tonight of the centennial of one of the greatest announcers in old-time radio and television history, the voice of Dragnet and the foil for Groucho Marx on You Bet Your Life, George Fenneman. Plus Gunsmoke and the usual surprise tidbit or two. So, please... Do yourself a favor, do me a favor, and forget about any troubles that annoyed or besieged you last week. It's over. And don't give a thought to the inevitable travails of next week. It doesn't really start till tomorrow. Instead, be here now and pay attention to an adventure not called the coast-to-coast matter, but rather the ghost-to-ghost matter. Johnny often visits small towns that are real, but Lake City, New Jersey is fictitious. As for the towns being haunted, well, listen to this episode from May 18th, 1958, CBS, AFRTS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. Uh, this is Art Price, International Press Service. Oh, holy smoke, Art. What are you doing up at this hour of the morning? I'm on the night desk, and I'm sorry to have to wake you up. So am I. Listen, I just got a call, a real frantic one, from a guy who insisted on having your phone number. Well, did you give it to him? He said he's an insurance man, and it was about some insurance matter, so yes, I did. Well, why'd he call you? Yeah, that puzzles me, too, but he was so excited, so, well, so frantic. Well, he probably called the first person he could think of, and he said it was a big emergency. Oh, did he give you any details? No, and Johnny, it's aroused my curiosity. Uh, let me know what it's all about, will you? Yeah, sure, sure. Promise? Okay, I promise. <laughs> Bob Bailey and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. 
The State Unity Life Insurance Company, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the ghost-to-ghost matter. I'd no sooner rolled over in the hope of getting back to sleep when the phone beside my bed started jangling again. Oh, nuts. Johnny Dollar. Oh, uh, this is Oscar H. Trimley, Mr. Dollar. Trimley? I represent State Unity Life here in Lake City, New Jersey. Oh, the look. Are you the man who called Art Price over at International Press Service? Yes, yes, I did uh, get your phone number. I, I knew, knew he'd have it, you're being such a famous investigator and all that. Yeah, well, you could also have got it from Universal Adjustment Bureau, your insurance directory, the long-distance operator. Oh, dear, I, I guess I've been so upset over this whole thing that it never occurred to me, but uh, can you come down here to Lake City, Mr. Dollar, right away? Well, it depends. What's this all about? Ian McAndrews. Who's Ian McAndrews? Oh, don't you know? He's the man who founded Lake City. So what's happened to him? Uh, He's dead, Mr. Dollar. Or rather, he isn't. uh... Huh? Well, that is to say, he he died, Mr. Dollar, about uh, five years ago. And? Well, uh, in due time, of course, we paid off the claim on his life insurance policy, $55,000. Everything in order and perfectly all right. Well, then? But now... Oh, oh no, Mr. Dollar. You you just won't believe it unless you come here and see for yourself. Oh, won't believe what? Ian McAndrews has come back. Huh? Either he or his... His ghost has come back here. Oh, now, wait a minute. No, no, it's true. It's absolutely true, sir. Ian McAndrews is haunting Lake City. So please come as quickly as you can. I, uh... I'll think about it. Oh, dear. Is that the best answer you can give me? Yeah, I'm afraid so, until I see how things line up for me these next couple of days. Goodbye, Mr. Trembley. Think about it. I can hardly wait to grab a train. But I didn't want Oscar Trembley to know that. Because I had a strong suspicion that if you can catch a ghost off guard, you'll be one up on him. Expense account item one, the promise phone call to Art Price and International Press. Are you kidding, Johnny? No, I'm deadly serious, Art. But a ghost in the little New Jersey. Yeah, yep, I'll keep in touch. Then I remembered Nancy. Nancy Turner, an old flame, or rather, a young old flame. She'd said something one time about taking up investigation of the supernatural. So, expense account item two, another dime for another call. Oh, Rascal Johnny, you haven't called me in ages. Well, you know how it is. Uh, look, Nancy, did you ever go ahead with your study of psychic investigation? Psychic? Oh, no, Johnny. I found I'd have to read a couple of hundred musty old books, so I gave it up. Oh, well, that's too bad. Oh, why? Well, I, I've got to run over to Jersey to investigate a haunted town. A haunted town? How thrilling. Except that such a thing is impossible. Oh, it is? Sure, but I, I kind of thought that maybe you were still... Well, I guess we better forget it. Forget it? Nothing. I'm going with you. Oh, no, no, wait. I... No excuses. I'll put on my face and another dress and be waiting by the time you can get here. Yeah, but look, honey, I... Huh? Johnny. Okay, Nancy, I'll pick you up. Item three, 1085, taxi and train for two to New York. Item four, 50 bucks deposit on a rental car when we got into Grand Central Station. We crossed over into Jersey and hit Route 22 for Somerville and Points West. 
And every mile of the way, Nancy chatted away like a magpie. She kept quoting some of the stuff she had read on the subject. A lot of authorities who decided that some of the reports on haunted towns and houses and people, things like that, had decided there was something really supernatural about them. And you know, after a while, I began to wonder. Yep, I began to wonder. Now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Ghost to Ghost Matter. Lake City, nestled in among the soft, rolling North Jersey hills. But it kind of has been town. I saw the reason for that in the abandoned mill, the old McAndrews cotton mill on one side of the lake. The same old story, I guess, when a town's main industry closes down, it kind of goes to pot. Nonetheless, it was a charming little place. Population... All maybe four or five hundred. When we finally located Oscar Trimley's insurance office, we found a bit of a gathering there. And Mr. Dollar, that is Miss Turner and Mr. Dollar. This is Charlie Reed, Neil oh, Foster, and oh, yeah. Tony Gray. Oh, yeah. We're oh. sort of local businessmen's club, Johnny, you know. Okay, then let's get to the point. Oh, uh, sit down, sit down. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Johnny, uh, I thought over the phone that you were turning us down. Well, I, I changed my mind, and uh, when I thought of Nancy and her knowledge of the supernatural... Good. That's what we need. Well, yes, you're right. Well, I am interested in the subject. We're all a little worried about it. Tony isn't kidding. I think we're a pretty level-headed bunch, but, well, this thing has us scared. That's putting it mildly. If it really is his ghost that's plaguing oh, us... Oh, now, you don't seriously believe in ghosts. Well, I'll tell you this. I never did before, but now... Well, wait and you'll see. Gee, Johnny. Well, suppose you tell me what's going on. Well, no, 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 Johnny. You'll have to see for yourself. And here. Yes, Charlie, and here. And that means waiting until midnight. Midnight? Sure, Mr. Dollar. Well, just why, Bill? You, you'll see. Yes, and meantime, you can look around... Say, aren't you quite a fisherman, Johnny? Oh, I'd rather fish than eat, but now look, if oh, you... Oh, I love to fish, too. Good, the lake's full of nice bass. Charlie, you can fix them up with a boat, can't you? You sure can. Yes, but if I'm going to Tony, investigate... Tony, you arrange for a place for Miss Turner to stay overnight. Be glad to. Well, now... And Johnny, you'll stay at my home, all right? Fine, but now at least no, tell me... No, no, I want you to see for yourself at midnight. Now, meantime, good fishing. Right. Uh, I've got to get back to the shop before Miss Bixley starts screaming about her high five. See you later. Yeah, and I'll come back to the office and arrange somewhere for Miss Turner to stay. See you later. See you, Tony. Now, if you folks will come over to the print shop with me, we'll pick up the keys to my boat and some tackle, and you can be on your way. Look, can't you at least give me some idea? Nope, nope, not a thing until midnight. Oh, and we'll all have dinner together at the hotel. Uh, Mr. Turner, you ready, uh, Mr. Turner? Johnny? (laughs) You fellas are the boss, I guess. Fishing, Nancy? I'd love it. I'll even give you some of the fast-strike hooks I use. Okay, then let's go. There was something slightly screwy about the whole thing. And I don't mean just the talk of a ghost. But when I go fishing, and at company expense, well, who's to complain? So Nancy and I spent the rest of the day on the lake. Matter of fact, she caught the big one. By dinner time, we were starved, and the little hotel served us not only excellent cocktails, but a regular banquet complete with champagne. You enjoying it, Miss Turner? Mmm, I love it. 
Only why don't you call me Nancy? Sure, why not? Charlie, I'll tell your wife. Now, Tony, you stay out of this. <laughs> Mr. Trimley, about this uh, ghost this, business. This champagne, you know, comes from the old Leland Stanford Vineyard. Oh, yes, and it's fine. Uh, finest I know. But it's time we talk about your ghost. Say, you land any big ones out on the lake? Uh, yeah, Bill, Nancy got a four-pounder. But now listen, would you... Another thing about this fine California wine. Hey, didn't wine. I see you navigating the boat, Nancy? Uh, listen, would you please? Well, I got one last year, weighed six and a half. Look, fellas, fellas, go it over near the old cocktail. Hey, fellas, look, please, will you tell me a little bit about... All I want to know is... So, I got nowhere. But then, finally, after a lot more food and wine and chatter, we drove off in Tony's car. Now, I'm stopping here in the middle of town, Johnny, because it's the best place to be when things start popping. Like what? Hey, when are you fellas going to stop this runaround and start making sense? You'll see, you'll see. I'm all excited. Look, Johnny. Yeah, Charlie? You see the old tower clock? Almost midnight. So what about it? Old McAndrews passed away at the stroke of midnight, Johnny. Personally, I think that has something to do with this. You still haven't told me with what? Uh, wait. Listen. There goes the tower clock. Oh, midnight. Count them, Johnny. That was four. Five. And Johnny, see how all the lights are flickering along the streets? That happens every night. And no reason for it. Look, that. Huh? Millions of bats coming out of that clock tower. Yeah. Yeah, I see them. But I don't... What under the sun is that? That's the ghost, wailing. Oh, now, wait a minute. That scream fills the air, comes from everywhere. It's a horrible sound. Johnny. Easy, honey. No, listen. Didn't you hear? That clock struck 13. Yes, Johnny. Why, yes. You ask me, the devil's in old McAndrew's ghost. That's why it comes out of his house every night. Out of his house? Right, Johnny. And wait till you see what's there. Right. Now, Act Three of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and the Ghost to Ghost Matter. Is the front door of this old house always left wide open? Yeah, Johnny. Sure you want to go in? Sure. Come along, Nancy. I, uh, I'm coming. Oh, there was more light around. Oh! Oh! <gasps> Oh, that's nice. Slammed right in our faces. I knew it. Unlocked, though. Let me have that flashlight, Tony. Here, here. Hmm. No sign of wires or strings on it. Come on. Oh, uh, okay. Come on, fellas. Now, Johnny. Yeah, Bill? As you can see, there's just one big room downstairs here. Johnny. Easy, Nancy, easy. Don't you see Look, that? I admit this is all pretty strange, but a ghost. Well, what else? We've been over this house with a fine-tooth comb. Hey, listen. You hear that? Somebody. Somebody's walking on the ceiling. Listen. Oh. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff you hear. Poltergeist. Noisy spirits. You can hear them, but you can't see them. Don't you see, Johnny? It can't be anything normal or natural. Is that the end? No, sir, they... The old ghost has a regular... Uh, see? Hear those shutters banging? There's no wind out there. Why? Why didn't you tell me it'd be like this, Johnny? Let's... 
lights moving around somewhere outside. You can see the reflection in the trees. But they're green. Ghost lights. Oh! oh. And Johnny, look. That's a rocking chair. It's rocking. In front of the window, where old McAndrews used to sit and look out on the town before he died. Give me the flashlight. Here. There's no strings or wires on this either. Well, well. That's the end of it. The same crazy routine every night. It's the ghost of Ian McAndrews. That's all there is to it. Well, from what you fellas have shown me tonight, it kind of looks that way. It is, Johnny. But tomorrow I want to investigate these things in broad daylight. I investigated, all right, the old house, the clock tower, everything I could find. And thanks to the help of the boys, we covered a lot of ground. Result? Nothing. Meantime, I noticed that the town, the sleepy little town of Lake City, was being mobbed. People from all over, streets jammed with cars. And as we sat down at lunch in the hotel... Uh, miss, uh, waitress, will you please bring me another cup of... Oh, dear, she didn't hear me. Where'd they all come from? Yeah, business has certainly picked up around here. Why, yes, I'd noticed that. Any idea why, Bill? Uh, not the least. No wonder Tony couldn't be with us for lunch. Charlie's at his print shop getting out an extra. Hey, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Aren't you Johnny Dollar, the investigator? Yeah, that's right. Man, can I use you? Now, just let me get a picture. Well, now, wait. Hold hey, it, you... hold it, hold it. Okay, Johnny, thanks. Thanks a lot. Hey, that photographer's from one of the New York papers. No kidding. Oh, really? Listen, if Art Price at International Press gave out the word about this ghost story... Oh, now, Johnny... Hmm. Okay, Nancy, you all finished? Uh-huh. Then, Oscar, Bill, we're going to leave the check with you and pull out. Uh, you mean uh, leave town? Yep, going back to Hartford. Well, Johnny. I've investigated, I've come up with nothing. So there's no point in staying around any longer. Oh, oh Johnny. Johnny. Thanks a lot, fellas. And, Oscar, I'll send you my expense account. Come on, Nancy. Give up? Hardly. Sure, Nancy and I hit the highway, but for only a few miles. Then, shortly after dark, we drove back. And for a couple of hours... For three or four hours. Well, anyhow, shortly before midnight, Nancy and I walked quietly up on the porch of Oscar oh, Trembley's insurance Oscar. office. You mean you didn't leave a message at my office to be here tonight? I certainly didn't. I found a message from Charlie. Are you kidding? Somebody left a message at my print shop to be here. And I got one at my radio shop. Well, I'll be Good darned. Girl, I... <laughs> now, I want... And of course, they couldn't know your handwriting. Wait a minute. There's somebody outside. Huh? Johnny. What? Huh? Good evening, gentlemen. Why? I thought you'd left town, Johnny. What are you doing back Yeah, that's right. I wanted you to think so. Oh, listen. The old tower clock has started to strike midnight. Oh, yeah, that's five, six. Boys, I suddenly realized that in all my investigation this morning, I was being handicapped by what I thought was help. Handicapped? What do you mean? Yeah, what's that? I had too much help. Two or three of you were with me every second. Oh, we wanted to be sure you wouldn't overlook it. That's right. You wanted to be sure I would overlook a few things. Huh? Hey, now, wait. That's 11, 12. Oh, hey, it only struck 12. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No uh, ghostly wail tonight, is there? Oh, I know. No, fellas, no. Because the ghost is no more. You uh, found the ghost, Johnny? 
I found out that he's one of you, maybe all of you. Alone, without your careful guidance, I finally located that sub-cellar in the old McAndrews house. You did? And that mess of complicated electrical stuff that was making the weird sound effects, the rocking chair, the banging shutters, and so on. Very clever. Your handiwork, Bill? Sure. Sure. Uh, but, but Johnny... Oh, uh, fellas, it was a wonderful publicity stunt. Especially after international press was notified. But, but you did that. Not only for your radio and electronics shop, Bill, for your real estate business, Tony, your print shop and newspaper, Charlie, and your insurance business, Oscar. Well, now, but Johnny... But for the whole I... town, it's going to put Lake City on the map again. Which is to say... The motive wasn't entirely selfish. No, of course it wasn't. Okay, okay, man. And because of that, and that alone, I won't give you away. Provided the ghost of Ian McAndrews never walks the streets of Lake City again. Well, you can be sure of that, Johnny. I don't know. I suppose I ought to really hit you over the head with this expense account. But, uh, after all, the cause was a kind of worthy one. So I'll be honest with it for a change. And it, uh, was fun to have Nancy Turner along. Expense account total, including mileage on the rental car, less deposit, thirty-one fifty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, the most dangerous, exciting incident of my whole career. I break out in a cold sweat whenever I think of it. So join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar starring Bob Bailey originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Forrest Lewis, Joseph Kearns, Russell Thorson, Sam Edwards, and Bob Bruce. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. A salutary fraud, I guess, in the ghost-to-ghost matter, an episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, from the spring of 1958, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to open our salute to Veterans Day, and to the veterans themselves, with an edition of Here's to Veterans, a show produced by the VA and syndicated from 1947 to 1976. It used radio stars and celebrity musicians to help veterans navigate the bureaucratic process of getting their government benefits. When Duke Ellington died, the series rebroadcast a program he had done some 20 years earlier with one of his greatest bands. Among the featured soloists were the trumpeter Clark Terry and the tenor saxophonist Paul Gonzalez. This is vintage Ellington, and a good example of what makes his music great. It's thoroughly modern, even today. Listen to how the saxophones harmonize. As the composer and trumpeter Wynton Marsalis says, it sounds dissonant, but it's not. Here it is, a 1974 rebroadcast of a 1953 edition of 
Here's to Veterans, featuring Washington, D.C. native Edward Kennedy Duke Ellington. Of all the great musicians who have appeared on Here's to Veterans since its debut in 1947, the greatest was the Duke. Now he has been laid to rest, but here is a program recorded for America's veterans in March 1953. Duke Ellington, as you remember him. This is Duke Ellington and the orchestra, and we do want you to know that we do love you madly. We're here on Here's to Veterans, the best in music for all you ex-service men and women and your folks everywhere. Especially transcribed for you by the Veterans Administration in cooperation with the American Federation of Musicians. This is Duke, speaking from Hollywood and inviting you to stop and listen as we entertain on Here's to Veterans. I'll have a message later on for you veterans, but right now, it's music and... How about three little words? That's me. 
to turn my back for 60 seconds from the good old piano. I've got a few pointers the Veterans Administration wants me to pass along to you. It's about those letters you write to the VA about your benefits. Unless you give full information to the VA every time you write, you mess things up for yourself. You and the VA. Well, that's a parlay. If you don't help the VA by telling them who you are, where you live, and exactly what it is you want, well, you make it tough for the VA to help you. I'm talking about teamwork. Sure, it's okay for the fellow at the piano to noodle around the keys and beat out happy harmony, but the other fellows in the combo, they've got to be in there too. Everybody doing his share. Otherwise, you'll be hearing some clinkers. You know what a clinker is. That's a bad note. And it's like that about writing to the VA. Do your share. Give full information every time you write. The rules are simple. I'll tell you after this next tune. It's a new thing we've whipped up. It's called Satin Doll. We like to play with it. again. Hey, that's me again. Back to keep that promise I made you. I said that unless you give full information to the VA, every time you write, you mess things up for yourself. 
I said the rules are simple, and here they are. Always tell VA exactly who you are and exactly what it is you want. If you have a C number, put it down in every letter you ever write to the VA. Your C number is yours and yours alone. No other veteran on earth has the right to use your C number. So, the minute the VA checks the C number in your letter, no question about it, that's you. If you don't have a C number, it's still easy to help the VA to help you. Do this. Put down your full name, give your correct address, make sure that you give the date of your birth, put down your serial number, and tell VA the branch of the armed forces in which you serve. Do this every time you write the VA, and you can't go wrong. That way, you and the VA make a perfect team, a perfect parlay. Well, friends, you know, this is our second visit to Here's to Veterans, and we hope you have enjoyed our things. And that's the Here's to Veterans tribute from yours truly, Duke Ellington and the orchestra. Here's to Veterans is presented, transcribed by the Veterans Administration in cooperation with the American Federation of Musicians, whose members have donated their services. And this station, which has contributed its time in the public interest. Tune in again for more top flight entertainment on Here's to Veterans. And now this is Duke Ellington saying, we do love you, Nader. 1953, a tribute to America's veterans by the great Duke Ellington, as you remember him. With his band's theme song, Billy Strayhorn's Take the A-Train. It closed Mr. Ellington's contribution to a 1953 edition of the public service broadcast, Here's to Veterans, rebroadcast in 1974, the year of the maestro's death. If you know the phrase, Oh, Wilbur, you probably know the British-Canadian-American actor Alan Young. He played Wilbur on the TV comedy Mr. Ed. And he was also the voice of Donald Duck's Uncle Scrooge for many years. Mr. Young had a great career, and it was inspired by radio. When he was a child, he suffered from asthma, and he spent long shut-in hours listening to the broadcasts in Western Canada. He was a teenage comedy star on the CBC, and his career really took off when he replaced Eddie Cantor for the summer on NBC in 1944. Mr. Young passed away in 2016, but had he lived another three and a half years, he would have turned a hundred this month. He was a warm, adorable, and very funny actor. 
And it's no wonder he had his own show for several years on American radio. We're going to celebrate his centennial tonight with an episode of that show that has some topical post-World War II references to the prank doodle Kilroy was here, the game shows Double or Nothing and Break the Bank, uh, Reynolds Tin, which is actually an aluminum utility boat. We have an ad for it on our Facebook page. OPA, the Office of Price Administration, that set price ceilings during the war and for a time afterward. The coffee song, they've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. And the whole episode is premised on the severe housing shortage for returning veterans. There are some jokes that deal with what today we'd call sexual harassment, but what's really noteworthy are the terrific jokes that use only sound effects to get laughs. With Jim Backus as his girlfriend's father and Charlie Cantor as his hapless pal Zero, it's The Alan Young Show from NBC, November 1st, 1946. And as usual, we take it to the Little White Cottage in Van Nuys, California, where we find the star of our show, that young man who is young today and young forever, Alan Young. Since preventing the housing problem is a responsibility of every citizen, every person who has a spare room should consider renting it to a veteran. So Alan Young has decided to do his bit. As we join him now, he's busy making room in his house for an ex-serviceman. Come on, Zero. Got to clear all this stuff out of the spare room. Yeah, okay, Alan. Let's see. You better move this bed out first. Huh? Yeah. Give me a hand, Zero. I'll bend down and you push it on my back. Okay, Alan. I'm bending now. Okay. I, I get, it, get it on my back. Now I'll carry it in the other room. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll set it down. Yep. Oh. <laughs> that takes care of the pillow. <laughs> Clear some of this other stuff out now, huh? Yeah. Hey, Alan, uh, I wonder what kind of a veteran is going to use this room. Well, what difference does that make? Well, if it's a sailor, maybe we ought to put in some portholes. And if it's a soldier, maybe we ought to put up some khaki wallpaper. Well, what if it's a wave or a whack? Then we can enlarge the keyhole. Zero, another crack like that, and I'll hide your bottle opener. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> Besides, when I called the housing center, I didn't specify any particular branch of the service. Well, that's... Wait a minute. You called the housing center? You told me to call them. I did? Yeah. Oh, gee. Now they'll be sending two of them over. Two. Well, Alan, we'll have them double up. I don't want veterans to have to double up. Suppose they were both paratroopers. They'd be pulling each other's pajama strings all night. I can take one. I guess I can take two. Yeah, there's the bell. I'll see who it is, Zero. Don't relax now. Okay. Maybe one of the fellas now. Hello, Alan. Oh, well, hi, Betty. I've been busy all morning cleaning up the spare room. <laughs> you certainly look cute in that apron and cap. Yeah. Uh, I guess I do at that. I'm still red from when the milkman pinched me. <laughs> Never knew what these housewives have to go through. <laughs> well, come on in, Betty. Thanks, Alan. 
Oh, and I brought over a surprise. Look what I've got with me. Well, I'll be darned. Hello, Mr. Ditton Pepper. Alan, this is bare skin rug, and you know it. <laughs> Betty, what'd you bring that over for? Well, this rug is Daddy's prized possession. And he's so pleased with you for taking in a veteran, he wants to contribute this for your spare room. Gee, that is a beautiful rug. Mm, Daddy shot the bear himself. Huh? I'll never forget that day. Daddy got up at six in the morning, put on his hunting outfit, loaded his gun, and left the house. And then when he couldn't find you, he shot the bear. <laughs> Don't say it like that, Betty. He was just calling for me to go hunting with him. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Oh, come on, Alan. Let's put the rug in your spare room. Oh, it's in the back, Betty. Just follow me this way through the kitchen. Place is not tidied up yet at all. Oh, Alan, you certainly can tell that only men live here. Mm -hmm. The way the dishes are piled up. Well, there must be a hundred dishes in that sink. Yes, Betty? Well, anyway, I'm glad I don't see any dirty silverware. Uh, by the way, Alan, where is your silverware? Under the dirty dishes. <laughs> here, I'll lead the way, Betty. Yeah. Well, what do you think of a spare room now? Well, let's... See, mm, first thing you ought to do is take down those pin-up pictures. We just put them up. Oh, Alan, I'd better explain something to you. Yeah? When men are in the army, they like to see pictures of girls in bathing suits and sarongs. But when they become civilians again, they don't care about things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, kid. <laughs> Anyway, Alan, Daddy's bearskin rug really seems to fit in this room. Yeah, it sure does, huh? Mm. You know, Alan, someday we'll decorate our own house together. Well? Mm -hmm. <laughs> After a year or so, we'll have to put pink and blue wallpaper in one room. And on the wallpaper, there'll be, there'll be cute little figures and funny little sayings. And you know what that means, Alan. Kilroy was here? <laughs> Oh, Alan, be serious. After we're married, don't you want to hear soft cooing in the next room? If you don't mind, Betty, I'd rather eat the pigeons on the roof. Oh, Alan, why don't you be serious? Betty, let's talk about something else, huh? Well, the spare room certainly looks much better now. Mm. Oh, by the way, I know how forgetful you are, so I called the housing center and asked them to send a veteran over. It... <laughs> Betty, I called up and Zero called up. We've already got two. Oh, Alan, I'm sorry. Well, we can take care of two. I guess we can take care of three. Yeah. Well, I'd better run along now, and I'll tell Daddy not to worry about the rug. Okay, Betty. You've got work to do, so don't bother showing me the door. Bye. Bye, Betty. Bye, Zero. Sorry, Mr. Butler. Zero. Yeah, Alan. Guess what's happened? Betty called up the housing center for a veteran, too. No kidding. That means three extra people. Oh. The beds are taken, the couch is taken. I'll have to sleep in a chair. Zero, the only place left for you to sleep is the refrigerator. Well, that's okay with me, Alan. That's my idea of heaven. Hmm? I can turn over in me sleep and grab a bottle of beer at the same time. <laughs> well, we'll do our best to make them feel at home. Yeah. Oh, come in. Pardon me, does uh, Alan Young live here? That's right. You were sent over here from the... Uh, uh... The uh, Veterans Housing Center. Yes, well, come on in. Uh, my name is Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper, glad to meet you, Bill. My name is Alan. Make yourself right at home. Thanks. Hmm. Things might be a little crowded, Bill. You see, besides you, I'm expecting some more veterans. Yes, I know. They'll be over in a little while. Oh, and speaking for all of us, I want to say it's swell of you, Mr. Young. Ah, forget it. We uh, hope we're not causing you any trouble. Ah, trouble. Besides the fellows you're expecting, uh, Hubert Updike and Mr. Dittenpepper sent over two more. Ah. <laughs> 
Are you, uh, are you sure that you can take care of all five of us? Uh... <laughs> well, uh, goodbye, Mr. Young. We'll be back with our things tonight. And, gee, thanks again. Zero. Zero. Ah, yeah. Now we're going to have to put up five veterans. Holy smoke! Where are we all going to sleep? Only one thing you do, Zero. We'll hang up our coats and pants in the closet tonight. Well, how is hanging up our coats and pants going to solve the sleeping problem? Zero, we're going to be in them. That old saying, it never rains but it pours, certainly seems to be true. Alan started out to rent his spare room to one ex-serviceman, and right now he's up to his neck in veterans. Five, all told. We find him now searching through the neighborhood in hope finding some rooms for the veterans. Should find some place for these veterans. I've got such nice neighbors. Oh, hello there, Mrs. Tyler. How is Meadowbrook? Lovely day today. <laughs> There's my new neighbor, Lana LaRose. Clothesline of hers always slows me down. <laughs> what? No time for that now. <laughs> Gotta find a place for those veterans. Let's see, which one of my neighbors has a big house? Well, you Mrs. Johnson. Here's the Johnson place now. Hope she can help me. Oh, hello, Mrs. Johnson. Oh, Alan Young, come in, come in, come in. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. <laughs> I have a sort of a problem, Mrs. Johnson. I was wondering if you could help me out. Well, that's what neighbors are for. You just tell Mrs. Johnson what's bothering you. Thanks. Well, I asked... Uh, but... Just a minute, the things those kids do. Herbert, get that ink out of your water pistol. And Johnny, go block your face. <laughs> What were you saying, Alan? Yeah. Well, you see, I asked... Danny, stop banging your head against the wall. I don't care if Walter does like the song. Yeah. Well, you see, Mrs. Johnson... Jimmy, stop that. I don't care if you did shave Bruce's head yesterday. Put away that sandpaper. Mrs. Johnson... Michael, stop running your bicycle over Albert. It's a bad habit to get into. We're not always going to live in California. Oh my gosh, Mrs. Johnson, how many children do you have? Fourteen. Fourteen children? Uh, yes, it all started when my husband was a contestant on Break the Bank. <laughs> Lucky he wasn't on Double or Nothing. But, Mr. Johnson, the thing I wanted to talk about was... Uh, by the way, Alan, you could do me a big favor. Oh, what is it, Mr. Johnson? Well, Alan, I heard about your spare room, and I wondered if you could take three or four kids off my hands. <laughs> oh, well, I'd like to, but a child's place is with his mother. They're such cute youngsters, too, especially little Jimmy right here. <laughs> Hello, Jimmy. Oh, I'm sorry, Alice. <sighs> That's all right, Mr. Johnson. You can mail back my thumb anytime. But getting back to your problem, Alan, what can I do for you? Oh, nothing, thanks, Mrs. Johnson. You've got your own regiment to worry about. <laughs> all those kids, 14 of them. I guess the OPA took the ceiling off everything. <laughs> oh, well, we'll have to work something else out, I suppose. There must be some place I can get these fences. <laughs> 
comes that filthy rich Hubert Updike. Always showing off with his money, putting on airs. Who else owns a Mexican hairless that wears a toupee? <laughs> Maybe he'll have some extra room. Oh, Alan, I'm here, I'm here. Come chase me with your net, for I am a great big butterfly. <laughs> Hubert, I'm glad to see you. But you called up the housing center and told them to send a veteran over to my house, didn't you? Yes, yes. Yes, you did, yes. <laughs> well, why didn't you have them send an ex-service man over to your house? Uh, they were all out of generals. <laughs> my, uh, my dear old dad, you know, has four stars, you know. I didn't know your father was a general. Well, he isn't. Then how'd he get four stars? He bought them outright from the Griffith Observatory. <laughs> Buying a star. Hubert, that's ridiculous. Nobody can own a heavenly body. Well, how about Betty Grable? Oh, that was a witty one, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hubert, you have such a big place, you ought to be able to take care of a lot of fellas. Well, I, I, I do, Alan, I do. I, I've got some scads of veterans over at my estate in Booverly Hool. No! <laughs> I, I, I try to make them feel right at home. Well, that's nice, Hubert. Uh, for example, I keep all the veterans from Nebraska in the right wing of my estate. Why? Well, that's in Nebraska. <laughs> You're always bragging. Well, why shouldn't I brag? Don't forget my ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War. My great-grandfather was a very brave man. Mm -hmm. He played his bugle at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Well, my great-grandfather was even braver. But what did he do? He sang the cop song at the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> oh, Alan, you make me so mad I could cattle up my teeth. No, no, you, you mean Nash. We updikes won't have anything under 12 cylinders. <laughs> Getting back to the veterans, I don't have enough room at my house. Alan, hmm? Alan, have you thought of putting them up in Mr. Denton Pepper's department store? Sure, but that's a wonderful idea. You really helped me out. Well, you can always bank on me, First National, of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, but before I go, I'd like to give you this bottle of champagne so you and the boys can celebrate. Well, thanks, Hubert. I'll have to get a corkscrew so I can open it. Open it with a corkscrew? Oh, how vulgar. <laughs> Hubert, how do you get your champagne out of the bottle? I always have a boat built so I can hit it across the bar. Oh. <laughs> well, I have to run along now, and I'm off to Boobly Hole. Boobly Hole? I'm off to Ditton Peppers. Daddy, you should see how Alan fixed up the spare room for the veteran. Ah, uh, Alan Young. Oh, Daddy, you have to give Alan a little credit. Yeah. Those veterans didn't have any place to go, and Alan certainly used his head. If Alan used his head, they got the biggest vacancy in town. <laughs> Daddy, what Alan is doing proves he has a wonderful character. Well, I must admit that he's really doing something sensible for a change. You mean you'll be nicer to him now? Yes, and he really seems to deserve it. Come in. Hello, Betty. Hello, Mr. Ditton Pepper. Hello, Alan. Well, Alan, my boy, sit down. Can I get you a drink? Would you like something to eat? Gee, I'm sorry you're not feeling well, Mr. Ditton Pepper. <laughs> I feel fine, Alan, my boy. And I want to tell you you're doing a wonderful thing for the community. Huh? And as a reward, I'm going to let you sit on the couch tonight and turn the lights down real low. Well, that's swell of you, Mr. D. <laughs> and if you behave yourself... Tomorrow night, I'll let Betty stay in the room with you. <laughs> uh, 
Betty and me all alone in the room with the lights down low? That's right. And I'll even leave the house. I'll go to a movie. You will? Mm-hmm. Gene Autry's playing in Silver Saddle. Gee, can I go with you? <laughs> I mean, can we go with you? <laughs> Look, I almost forgot what I came over to ask you, Mr. Denton. Well, what's that, my boy? Well, somehow I'm getting a lot more veterans than I expected, and I wondered maybe if you could let, let me let some of them stay in your department store. Alan, my boy, that's the first thing I thought of. But it's impossible without a housing permit. It is, huh? So just make sure... <laughs> So just make sure you take care of those veterans. Oh, and don't let anything happen to my bearskin rug. Oh, yes, Mr. Dittenberg. Uh-huh. Well, I'll leave you two alone now. Goodbye, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> Betty, I guess I better go home and try to figure out what to do. Oh, Alan, you'll think of something. And don't let anyone discourage you. Well, it's kind of hard when your father doesn't think I have any brains. Oh, people are always saying things about your brain. But they're only making a mountain out of a molehill. <laughs> Thanks, Betty. Well, I'll see you later. So what are you doing to the bathroom? I'm removing the plumbing. The plumbing? I'm just turning the bathroom into a bedroom so we can put up those extra veterans. Here, help me take this bathtub in the backyard, Ellen. The bathtub in the backyard? What do we do on Saturday nights? This is California. Who can see through that fog? Zero, you can't turn the bathroom into a bedroom. Zero, be careful. Stop worrying, will you, Alan? All I gotta do is separate these two pipes. But, Zero, the water isn't shut off. You're like... Alan, I know what I'm doing. Zero, here it goes. Zero. The water's gushing all over the room. Oh, yeah. It's flooding the place. Up to my ankles. It's up to my knees. Yeah. Well, I used to be saggy, now I'm soggy. Come on, let's get out of here. Oh. Oh. Look at my house, Zero. Every room is flooded. Oh, I'm sorry, Alan. Now those five veterans are homeless, and we're homeless, too. Look, every room is underwater. Yeah. What are we going to do, Will? Only thing I can think of is to put an ad in the paper. Ad in the paper? Yeah, house for rent for man who owns a Reynolds pen. <laughs> for the smart set with five minutes more. Give me five minutes more, only five minutes more. Let me stay, let me stay in your arms. Here am I begging for only five minutes more, only five minutes more of your time.
trying to make room in the house for five veterans, they broke the water pipes and flooded the entire place. With every room completely flooded, Alan and Zero are afraid to open the doors. As we join them now, they are sitting in the backyard, sadly contemplating Van Nuys' new aquarium. Gee, look at the house is flooded, Zero. What a mess. Everything in the place must be ruined. Well, I don't have to worry about my precious belongings, Alan. Hmm? They all got corks in them. <laughs> I just thought of something. Mr. Dittenpepper's bearskin rug is in there. <gasps> he shot the bear himself. It's his prized possession. Oh. oh. When he sees what's happened to that, he'll tear me in half. And there'll be seven of us looking for a place to live. <laughs> well, look, Alan, don't let Mr. Dittenpepper in the house. Mm. I'll go see if I can get a pump to dehydrate this place a little, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Hurry back, Zero. My house is wrecked. Veterans won't have any place to sleep. Mr. Dittenpepper will kill me when he sees his rug. I'll lose Betty. Bad luck. Nothing but bad luck. Some people are born under the sign of Aries, the ram. Some are born under Scorpio, the scorpion. Some are born under Taurus, the bull. I must have been born to Elsie, the cow. <laughs> Maybe I can get that bearskin rug out of the house before Mr. Allen, my boy. Oh, Mr. Ditton Pepper, just thinking about you. Something pleasant, I hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ellen, I'm glad I arrived here before the veterans. I thought I'd just take a look and see how my bearskin rug brightens up your room. No, no, you can't. Don't, don't open the door. And why not? Well, I, uh, I want to show you some card tricks. <laughs> it's card tricks. Real tough card tricks. Ellen, you haven't even got any cards. Well, I told you they'd be real tough. <laughs> Ellen Young, get out of the way. I'm opening the door. No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You must have left the cap off my bottle of 7-Up. I'm the young you tried to drown me. No, no, I didn't, Mr. Dittenpepper. It's just that the veterans are plumbing the kitchen and then Zero twisted the wrong bedroom. Ellen Young, I'll fix your wagon. Anything you say, I'll break it. You can fix it. Just look at my suit. My pants are completely out of shape. That marvelous. They finally fit you. Listen, you idiot. Young. I'm right here. Here come the veterans now. What'll I do? Hello, Mr. Young. Oh, hello, Bill. I, Bill, I'd like you to meet Mr. Dittenpepper. Oh, glad to know you, sir. How do you do, young man? <laughs> Mr. Dittenpepper, you shouldn't have tipped your hat. <laughs> Bill, I'm sorry, but I won't be able to put up you and your buddies, at least not for a while. Well, and... that's perfectly all right, Mr. Young. Since I talked to you, we've had a lot of offers from the people in the neighborhood. Huh? Yes, when the people saw that you were willing to take five of us vets into this small house, well, it sort of woke them up. Now we're all taken care of. Oh, that's swell, Bill. I guess the only ones that are homeless now are Zero and me. What do you mean, homeless? My whole place is flooded. Look at that house. Pismo Beach with wallpaper. <laughs> well, gee, why didn't you say so? Me and my buddies were in the engineer corps. Hmm? Hey, fellas, come on, we've got work to do. <laughs> 
Look at my house, Zero. Good as new. Yeah, sure looks good, Alan. Ain't that right, Mr. Dick Pepper? Never mind your house. Alan Young, what's happened to my bearskin rug? Oh, oh, your bearskin rug. Well, it kind of shrunk a little. Shrunk? Let me have that rug. Okay, guess which hand. (laughs) Young man, you'll never see Betty again. You've ruined my prize possession. I shot that bear with my own hands, and it won first prize at the Van Nuys Athletic Club. I'm sorry, Mr. Dittenberg. Hey, wait a minute, Alan. Look at this bearskin rug. Underneath where the water soaked the lining off. Read what it says. Manufactured by the Cucamonga Carpet Company. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Dittenberg. Alan, my boy. We're not going to let a little rug come between us. Mr. Dittenpepper, the Van Nuys Athletic Club should hear of this. Oh, just a moment, my boy. Such a fraud should be brought to light. Alan, my boy, how would you like to come over to my house for dinner tonight? Mr. Dittenpepper, if you think for one moment that I'm the sort that can be bribed and influenced by favoritism and flattery, (laughs) better make it stage. Friends, tonight we had a little fun showing you what happens when vets try to get a place to live. Believe me, it's a pretty serious situation. So won't you all do everything you can to help a veteran find a house, an apartment, or even just a room? Thanks. See you next Friday. Good night. This is Jimmy Wallington to remind you that Alan Young can now be seen in 20th Century Fox's Margie. The Alan Young Radio Show is written by Al Schwartz and Sherwood Schwartz. The part of Hubert Updike is played by Jim Backus. And Zero by Charlie Kent. The music is by George Weil and his orchestra. And remember... We'll be seeing you next Friday, everybody, everywhere. At this time and on this station with a big hello buyer. With my pen of vitality, new products you should know. Alan does his bit to help veterans, and they do theirs to help him, on The Alan Young Show from the fall of 1946 and from this Veterans Day Eve on the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Anthony Ellis was one of the greats of radio as a writer, an actor, a producer, and a director. I have no idea if he was Jewish, but why else was the Gunsmoke episode we played a few weeks ago called Meshuggah, the Yiddish word for crazy? Thanks to those listeners who sent in some good theories about that. But why is tonight's episode called Ganif, which is the Yiddish word for thief? Mr. Ellis wrote both scripts, and you'll notice that the villain in the piece we're about to hear is named Bissell a perfectly good English name, but it's also a Yiddish word meaning a little bit. 
Anyway, please forgive my curiosity and those of some of our listeners as you listen to Ghanif, an episode that features what would have been a brand new song in the 1870s, Home on the Range. And that comes from April 11th, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Bissell's in the barbershop, Mr. Dillon. There's three of his boys waiting outside and a couple more in with him. All right. You think we might better take care of them separate than all together, Mr. Dillon? Can't take care of them at all, Chester, unless they do something. I'd as soon not wait for it to happen. Have they seen you? No, sir, I don't think so. I've been mostly around the corner here, out of sight. That's good. All right, keep me covered, will you? Now, here, you ain't going in there alone. Yeah. Now, now you can't do that. They take one look at your badge and they'll draw. I don't think there'll be any shooting, Chester. Yes, sir. I started across the street to Stapley's barber shop, and I saw three gunmen lounging outside. They didn't directly look at me, but they knew I was coming over because their hands slipped down and hung an easy distance from their guns. One of them I recognized as Buffalo Mason, a cowboy who found more money working for Frank Bissell as a gunman than driving cattle up from Texas. The other two I'd never seen, but I knew the kind. By the time I'd crossed the street, they'd moved. stood on either side of the door. want something, Marshal? I hear your friend Frank Bissell's inside. He might be. Seems to me I told you you weren't to show your nose around here again, Mason. You remember? Not rightly, Marshal. Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah, I said that. Get away from the door. I got a word or two to say to Bissell. Well, how's about you tell me the word, Marshal? I'll pass it along. Frank is kind of busy right now. If I wanted to tell you, I wouldn't be needing to tell him, would I? Well, that's so, Marshal. How come you to take all this talk, Buffalo? Why don't you just kick him out in the street? What's your name? <coughs> all right, you two. Take your pal over to the water barrel there and cool him off. Move. 
Howdy, Marshal Dillon. Be with you in just a few minutes. Have a chair. Thanks, Mr. Stapley. Yes, sir, I tell you, friend, styles is changing. I seen in the New York magazine a center parting that'd knock your eye out. Sister of mine sent the picture out to me. Now, you sure you wouldn't like me to try it? Just cut it like I told you. Yes, sir, you're the customer. Tom. Yes, Frank? Tell Mr. Dillon to step around here where I can see him. You hear what Frank says, mister? I heard him. <laughs> Take it easy, Barbara. You're pulling my hair in the back. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. You know what I can see in the mirror, Mr. Dillon? A lot of things, I guess. I can see outside the door. I saw a friend of mine out there a minute ago. And I saw a fella whip him on the head with his six-gun. That's funny. I saw the same thing. My friends don't like being buffaloed. Well, they should have done something about it. They should. Maybe they will. Maybe. Now I got something to say, Bissell. B Bissell? Frank Bissell? Keep on cutting, Barber. I ain't cut no killer's hair. No, sir. If I'd known who you was, I never... You heard him. Finish. It's all right, Mr. Stapley. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I know your reputation, Bissell. But right now, I got no cause to arrest you. So far as I know, you're clean in this territory. Uh -huh. But you're not staying here. As soon as you're through in that chair, you and your pals are getting out of Dodge. Well, we just got here, Mr. Dillon. We thought we'd put over for a spell. Here you got mighty fine entertainment here. It doesn't start till after nightfall. And you're going to be gone by then. Funny thing, Mr. Dillon, I've heard a lot of talk about you. Buffalo Mason says he had a run-in with you a few months back. <laughs> I thought you were a different man to what I see. So? So, you're not much. Kind of windy, but not much. Tom, give the marshal a five-dollar piece and show him the door. That's for your duty, Mr. Dillon. Are you all through with him, Mr. Stabley? Uh, yes, sir. I'm all through. Okay. Now, get up out of that chair, Bissell. I knew what they meant about Frank Bissell when I saw him smile as he got out of his chair. It was the smile of a man who says one thing with his lips and another with his eyes. He reached down to his holster and then around to his pocket. Pulled out a bill and passed it to the barber. He'd made his move like he wanted to get me to draw. And when I didn't bite, he pulled his hat off the peg and came over to me. The two boys with him went past us and waited by the door. It's like I say, Mr. Dillon, my boys and I are here for some resting and playing. Now, if you want a private little war, you can start gunning for us any time you want. But you'll have to start it. You've got until sundown to leave town, Bissell. Marshal, you didn't hear what I said at all. Sundown. If you're still around after that, you'll all go to jail. We don't want any trouble. 
We want to take it nice and easy. You take it easy, too, huh? I'll be seeing you. That was him, wasn't it, Marshal? That was Frank Bissell. The Frank Bissell. Oh, Mr. Dillon, if you shot him in here, I could have put up a sign. Yes, sir. I sure could. Frank Bissell. Shot and killed here by... I'm Mar sorry I couldn't oblige you, Mr. Stapley. Good day. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. They're getting out, huh? I didn't think it'd be as easy it as It isn't. Yes, sir, but look, they're, they're riding right I gave on. them until sundown. Oh. Oh, that's about two hours. Hey, you know, Mr. Dillon, in two hours, them boys can do an awful lot of trouble. They try and there's going to be trouble. Yes, sir. You want me to follow her and see where they go? No. Now we'll wait back at the office. On the way back, I stopped at the saloons and told the boys to send out word if Bissell and his gang came in after sundown. I told them I'd be waiting in the office. When I got to the Texas Trail, Kitty was leaning against the bar, singing. A half a dozen cowboys were standing around, drinking, but listening quietly. It was a kind of a sad song. Where the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard A discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy All day Evening, Miss Kitty. Kitty? Yeah. Well, never heard that song before. Uh, well, I haven't either. Fellow was in a while back, brought it by. He uh -huh. wrote out the words for me. It, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Uh, say, Kitty, there uh, might be a little trouble tonight. Oh? Yeah, Frank Bissell and his boys are in town. I heard it's all over town. I know. Let me know if they come in, will you? Sure, Matt. Okay. I'll see you so long. So long. Mr. Dillon. You feel like stopping by Delmonico's for supper, Chester? Well, Mr. Dillon, I'm kind of low this week. You see, I sent East for one of them new suits Mr. Hightower was telling about. You know, the ones that's got the vest and all? The thing cut away here and then fine and tight up here? <laughs> I'm sure you'll look fine in a Chester. Come on, let's get supper. I got money. about sundown when we got through supper. I'd gone in Delmonico's mostly with the idea that Bissell would head there himself. That way I could get the thing over before it got really started. But he didn't oblige. 
Not until Chester and I were getting up from the table. My gracious, Mr. Dillon. I feel swollen up like an overfed puppy dog. <laughs> you look like one. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, look. Coming in. Hey, I see him. All right, let's go. Man, I'm hungry. I could eat me one of... Well, <laughs> hello, Mr. Dillon. Say, how's the food in here? It's sundown, Mr. Bissell. Yeah, it's late for me to be eating. The boys, too, we're hungry. Come outside. Mr. Dillon, we just came in for a nice, quiet meal. You don't want trouble with all these people in here, Mr. Bissell. Now you do as I say outside. Come on, huh? You want to start trouble, Marshal? Buffalo, where's your manners? There's women folk in here that might get hurt if shooting started. Frank, you heard... You heard what I said. Besides, Mr. Dillon isn't going to do anything. He's just got to make noise like he does. So those people will, will think he's doing his job. Well, Mr. Dillon, I sure would like to stay and talk, but... Um... All right. All right, go ahead and eat, Bissell. I'll be waiting for you outside. Sure. You do that, Mr. Dillon. You wait for me outside. there'd be a lot of talk in Dodge. Some would say that I should have drawn on Frank Bissell and his gang right then in Delmonico's. Well, I had my own opinion about that. Chester and I waited outside for Bissell to get through and come out. By that time, the word was out, and it sounded like every cowboy, bullwhacker, and buffalo hunter in Dodge was hanging around waiting to see the fun. It was dark then, and the moon was rising. All of them boys has come up from the other side of the tracks, Mr. Dillon. I know. You got any tobacco on you, Chester? You want I should tell them to get on back? Here you are, sir. Ah, thanks. Now, I tell you, Chester, most of those men have come to a show. They want to see some shooting. Blood and killing. Well, seeing how long that's what they came for, I don't figure they'll want to be any part of that show. Yes, sir. What are you aiming to do when Bissell comes out? Arrest him. Find Bissell $100 and the others 25 apiece. Then lock him up for the night. Yes, sir. <laughs> got bigger, and it got quieter, too. Standing on both sides of the street with a respectable distance between themselves and the entrance to Delmonico's, where Chester and I waited. 
It was going on 8.30 when the door opened. And Frank Bissell stepped out. His boys following after him. You still waiting, Mr. Dillon? I thought you'd be somewhere rolling drunk by now. You're under arrest, Bissell. And all of you. What have we done? We're real peaceful, you can see that. Uh, come on, Frank. Let's get down to the opera house. Hand over your guns. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, I never done that yet. I don't expect I'm going to do it now for you. We're calling your bluff, Dillon. Six of us. Go ahead and start it. Go ahead. I don't want any killing, Bissell. Now you come in quietly. No, Mr. Dillon. I'd made up my mind even before he answered because I knew he wouldn't back down. And the crowd was watching. And in that same second through the window of the restaurant, I saw the figures of two women and a child making for the door. They were right in line with any shooting I might do. Bissell and the others were directly in front of them. And now they had their guns drawn. And mine was still in its holster. Oh, now. I've heard you're pretty fast, Marshal. With talk, Frank. Lots of talk, that's all. Sure, sure, sure. Now, you be a good fellow and go about your business. We're going down to the opera house. Don't come looking around because next time we might have to be real painful with you. <laughs> hey, look at that. You better get out of town, Marshal Dillon. You're through. <laughs> Come on, Chester. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. I'd made two mistakes. First, going to Delmonico's and figuring I could bluff him out of town without any shooting. And then not getting Bissell away from the restaurant door before calling him. And it wasn't good. A lot of drifters and Dodge were going to take advantage of the situation before the night was out. Law officers don't live long when they make mistakes. Chester and I headed for the Texas Trail. You gonna let him get away with that, Mr. Dillon? For a while. My gracious, Mr. Dillon, they spit right in your eye, every one of them. You ain't gonna take it, are you? I made a mistake, Chester. Now I gotta make it right. Yes, sir, I know, but this will be all over town. Mr. Dillon, will you tell me why you didn't draw and get it done? I had my reasons, Chester. Madam, I heard you were waiting for Bissell over Delmonico's. 
How was the world? Everything's fine, Kitty. No, it ain't fine, Miss Kitty. That Frank Bissell drawed on Mr. Dillon and... And... And what, Chester? You said you had your reasons, Mr. Dillon. Join us for a beer, Kitty? Sure, Matt. You, you didn't get him out of town? No, not yet. Oh. They liked the song. Did you hear We sat in the Texas trail, Chester nervous and looking to the door every minute or so. And as a cowboy drifted in, and then another, and a couple more, I could tell that news of what had happened outside Delmonico's had spread. That's the trouble with a reputation. You build it or you get it built for you. It's like a trap. You gotta stay a step ahead of it. If you don't, there's always the question. Even with the people you think you know real well. Like Chester and Kitty. And I knew they were wondering why I'd back down. About a half hour go by, which I calculated was enough time for Dodge to make a hero out of this one. Then it was time to go. Where are we going, Mr. Dillon? The Opera House. The Opera House. That's where they've gone, ain't it? That's right. Well, good. I want you to stay out of this, Chester. Oh, now, Mr. Dillon... You heard what I said. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. I said, Chester, keep out of it until you're told. All right, Mr. Dillon, I will. It was between shows at the opera house, and most all the customers were in the saloon next door. Bissell was at the bar and his pals around him, and a dozen or more newfound friends standing in drinks. Yeah, the news had got around all right. And the gunman was a hero. He'd made the law back down. Hey, look who's here, boys. Hey, Frank. Look it. Marshal Dillon. Didn't I get through telling you a while back? Are you drunk, Bissell? I never get drunk, Mr. Dillon. Well, I'm glad to hear it. All right, you other men, get away from the bar, quick. You six stay where you are. <laughs> I'm telling you. Now, anybody who wants to stay with Bissell and his gang's going to get hurt. Now, you move. Hey, sure is tough, Frank. <laughs> okay. Mr. Bissell... Draw. Oh, now, 
Mr. Dillon, you don't want me to do that. You leave me. Leave me do it, Frank. I need the practice. No. No, wait a minute, Norm. I think he means it. Sure, Mr. Dillon. I guess I have been riding you pretty hard. Sure. Anytime you... Well, what are you going to draw, mister? I'm going to tell you something. I could have hit you in the belly as easy as making a hole in the wall. But I don't like killing. Now, you're under arrest, all of you. Chester. Yes, sir. Keep him with her arms up. Yes, sir. Now, you... Take off your guns, Bissell. I said take off your guns and do it now. All right, put them on the bar. No, I'm putting my gun on the table here. If I'm not on my feet to get it when you and I are finished, it's yours. And I'm through as marshal here. Mason, you pick him up. You, you help him. They're all gone out of the jail. Carry him with you. So I made a show for the town. And a lot of big words to go with it. And they swallowed it. And Bissell and his gang lost everything, including their conceit. We put him in jail overnight, and the next morning each man was fined $25, Bissell 100 and they rode out a Dodge. I'd be a liar if I didn't admit I did a little more than my job when I threw my gun away and worked Bissell over with my fists. He was a hard man, and I might have lost. Except that I had my reputation to think about. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Barney Phillips, Jack Crucian, and Howard McNear. Parley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Another side of Matt Dillon and another insight into his character from writer Anthony Ellis, the husband of Miss Kitty, Georgia Ellis, and the episode Ganif 
from Gunsmoke in the spring of 1953. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. I'm Murray Horwitz. And you can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Is there any voice we hear more frequently on the big broadcast than that of George Fenneman? Well, maybe William Conrad. Mr. Fenneman appears here not only once every week as one of two announcers on Dragnet, along with Hal Gibney, but we've heard him on other shows as well, and more than occasionally. His was one of the great voices of old-time radio and old-time television, where he narrated films, hosted game shows, and, most frequently appeared as a commercial spokesman. We could hear him a lot more on our show, but we have to cut out the many cigarette commercials he did on Gunsmoke and Dragnet and other programs. In that role on television, you often saw him with a cigarette in his hand. I don't know if there's a definite connection, but Mr. Fenneman did die of lung disease in 1997 at the age of 77. Had he lived, tonight would have been his 100th birthday, and we're going to celebrate it with back-to-back examples of his two most famous performances. In the next hour, we'll hear him as Groucho Marx's sidekick on You Bet Your Life. And right now, we'll hear him voice a line that is so well-known, it's really part of American folklore. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Mr. Fenneman said it every week for many years on both radio and TV. He said it on October 13, 1953, introducing an episode called The Big Plea from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. Two hold-up men have been operating in your city. You've got descriptions of the men and of the car they're driving. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, April 14th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. My name's Friday. We were on our way out from the office, and it was 10.46 a.m. when we got to the corner of Calhoun Street and Van Nuys Boulevard. The Universal Hobby Shop. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? We'd like to see Stanley McGowan, please. Oh, Stan's not in right now. Anything I can do for you? When do you expect him? It shouldn't be long. He just went out for some coffee. Are you sure there's nothing I can do? No, sir. You know where he went? No, I don't. Probably up the street. He'll be right back, though, if you want to wait. All right, fine. Uh, pull up a couple of those stools. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you. You mind if I go ahead with this? I can get it finished this afternoon. No, sir. You go right ahead. Pretty jazzy deals. You seen them? What's that? 
Uh, these boat models. Put them in a bottle. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a new one. Just came in. Take a look. Jean Lafitte's boat. Pretty, isn't it? How's that? Uh, Lafitte, the pirate, you know. Oh, yeah. How do you get it inside the bottle? Well, the bottle comes in two halves. It's uh, cut apart lengthwise. Here you put the boat in and glue the halves together. Uh, there are a couple all finished over there. Look pretty good. Mm-hmm. How long's McGowan been working here? Oh, I guess it's been about six months around in there. You guys friends of his? We want to talk to him. Oh. That's funny about him. What's that? Well, he doesn't seem to have any close friends. Hey, you know, like you could call up and ask a favor from him. Never hear him talk about anybody like that. You ever seen any of his associates? Oh, a couple of times when we get ready to close up, there might be a guy waiting for Stan. Most of the time he plays a single, though. I've tried a couple of times to get him out, you know, stop the bar on the way home, have a couple of drinks. Stan won't have any part of it, plays it single. Do you have a car, would you know? Mm, not that I've ever seen. Hey, say, will you hand me that gold paint over there? Yeah, sure. This one? Uh, no, no, the, the small one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Here you are. Ah, oh, thanks. And a little bit of this goes a long way. Touch up the tops of the mast here and she'll be ready to rig. Well, these friends are his that pick him up. What kind of car do they drive? Say, uh, what are all these questions for? Who are you guys? Police officers. It's Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Oh, cops. Uh, well, what do you want with Stan? He done something? We just want to talk to him. I sure hope it isn't anything serious. I'd sure hate to lose Stan. That's so? Yeah, he's one of the best riggers we've ever had. There's a couple of his models over there. Take a look. That one in the case. $150. Old Ironsides. One of the best boats we've turned out. Stan did that. Sure got a steady hand. And that's what it takes when it comes to rigging. Steady hand. Want to go out now, Rudy? Uh, yeah, yeah, in a minute. A uh, couple of fellas here want to talk to you. You want to see me? Your name's Stanley McGowan? Yeah, that's right. What's this about? They're cops, Stan. Yeah? This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. I'd like to talk to you, McGowan. I'm sure, what about? Might be better if we went out in the car, huh? Make no difference to me. Uh, you fellas stay here. I'll go out for some coffee. All right, thank you. Uh, bring you back some? No. No, no, thanks. Uh, I won't be long. Okay. What are you got to talk to me about? You seen Jim Boland lately? No, I haven't. When did you see him last? A couple months ago. Why? Where'd you see him? I'd come in here, want to know if I could help him out, give him a job, place to sleep. Did you? No, I told him he could bunk at my place for a couple of days till he got squared away. Nothing I could do about a job. Why'd he come to you? I don't know. I met him at Q. Didn't have much to do with him. Hey, why'd you guys come to me? What makes you think I might be running with him? We didn't say you were. Same thing. You figure I know where he is? Well, the record says you knew him. We're just checking it out. I got nothing to do with him. I'm reporting every month. You check with my parole officer. He'll tell you. I've been carrying a bucket since the day I got out of the joint. I'm going to keep on carrying it. We got no beefs with you, McGowan. We just want to get in touch with Bowling. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do to help you out. Anything comes up, I'll give you a call. You mentioned any of his friends in town when you saw him? Some guy named Phil, that's all. You know who he is? No, I never met him. Jim said they were cooking up some kind of deal. You know what it was? No. Look, I'd like to feed you guys, but there's nothing I can tell you. As far as I'm concerned, I want to stay away from Jim and the crowd he runs with. I want no part of him. I did my time. A couple more months, I'll finish up with the parole. I don't want to fall again. Nothing you can tell us about this guy, Phil, huh? Not a thing. You know where he met Boland? Seems like Jim mentioned it. I think it was some bar down on West 7th. Just a guess, though. I couldn't back it. You know if Phil drove a car? Yeah. You know what kind? It seems like it was a Lincoln, a late model sedan. How about the color? It was dark. I saw it once when he came by to pick up Jim. It was nighttime. I couldn't tell too good. It was just a dark color. Where was this? My place? I told you Jim bumped with me a couple of days right after he got in town. He just said you offered to let him stay with you, is that right? Well, same thing. Anyway, he was only there a couple of days. You say where he was gone? No, I didn't see him. Him and me had a beef about how he wasn't looking for a job. He used to sit around all day reading magazines. We finally had a fight about it. I told him to get out. Wanted no part of him. I came home that night. He was gone. I haven't seen him since. I don't much want to either. Mm-hmm. Look, what are you after him for? What's he done? Just want to talk to him. You got a piece of these market jobs around town? Why do you ask that? Well, sounds like Jim, the way he works. I just figured maybe it was him. You checked the board, he violating parole. They tell us he hasn't shown up for three weeks. That's too bad. 
kind of figured maybe he'd swing it this time. How do you mean? A couple times up in the joint, we'd get to talking. He said he finally learned it. Figured out there was no way to beat it. Said if he got his parole, he's going to stick by it. Get a job, carry a bucket. Too bad. Mm-hmm. All that talk, I really believed he meant it. So did the parole board. Six weeks before, on March 3rd, the manager of a large supermarket had arrived at work. When he opened the front door, he found that a customer had followed him into the building. When the manager told the person that the store wasn't open for business yet, the man had drawn a gun and demanded that the safe be opened. The manager complied, and after taking $1,400 from the safe, the thief had fled. The manager was able to give us a good description of the holdup man and an accurate description of his car. He was unable to give us the license number, and he could tell us little about the man who remained in the car. Immediate broadcasts were gotten out on the thieves, but they'd apparently made good their escape. On March 12th, the procedure was repeated. Again, we were able to get good descriptions, but we were unable to come up with the suspects. In the following four weeks, the thieves hit five more times. Each time, the M.O. employed was the same. The descriptions from each of the victims tallied with those that we'd already gotten. The description of the car was the same. This information was turned over to the stats office for compilation. Their findings listed 14 possible suspects. The packages of these men were pulled from R&I and the mugshots were shown to the victims. In each instance, one picture was picked as bearing a close resemblance to the holdup man. The prime suspect was identified as James Boland, WMA, 32 years old. He'd been arrested twice for violation of Section 211 of the Penal Code. He'd been convicted once and had been sentenced to San Quentin for a period of from five years to life. However, at the prison, his behavior and attitude had been good and he'd been paroled on February 19th, ten days before the first holdup. We found that Boland had violated his parole and was wanted by the state adult authority. A check of his friends netted us no new information. His relatives could tell us nothing about his whereabouts. The legwork continued. Informants were questioned, but were of no material aid. Saturday, April 18th, 8.46 p.m. I'd just gotten home from work and I was unlocking my front door. Hello? Oh, yeah, Dave. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I just got in. When was that? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'll have to call my partner. Right. Yeah, where? Yeah, I know where that is. Well, let's see. It's 8.47 now. It'll take us about, oh, 15, 20 minutes. Right. Okay, we'll see you there. Yeah, sure. Bye. Hello, Faye. Yeah, Frank there yet? What if I could talk to him? Oh, Frank, I just got a call from Dave Hyde. Yeah, says he wants to see us right away. Bar down on 6th Street. Yeah, no, I'll be downstairs. Okay, what? Yeah. No, he says he knows where we can find Jim Boland. Ten minutes later, Frank picked me up and we drove down to the cocktail lounge that our informant, David Hyde, had picked as a meeting place. When we walked in, we couldn't see Hyde, but the bartender told us that he was in one of the rear booths. We walked back. Hi, fellas. Come on. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. What do you got for us? Lousy bum. All the things I did for him. All the things, and now he's got a chance to settle up, and he says he's having no part of me. You talking about Boland? Boland. What a bum. All I done for him, this is the way he pays me back. Boy, you just wait till I spread the word around. There won't be anybody in town will have anything to do with him. He's through in this town. T-H-R-E-W. All right, Dave. Settle down and give us the word. Where'd you see him? Bar over on 7th. Big man now. Got a roll. Looks like a branch of Fort Knox. A lot of money. But he's too good for his old friends. Too good. Say, uh, how about you fellas popping for a drink for a pal? Huh? How about it? You've had enough. Come on. Why don't you see Bowling? Just this morning, big man. Got good clothes driving a big car. Asked him for a loan. Just to get squared away, pick up a couple of tabs I got around town. Just see me over the hump. 
You know what kind of car he's driving? Yeah, big Lincoln. Brand new. Got red leather trim on the seats. Even got one of those seats that goes up and down, but he can't give a pal a helping hand. I, I spread this word around town, he's really finished. Ain't a guy in town to touch him with a 12-foot pole or a real darb, a real darb. You know where he's living? Nah, I don't know. Probably got a house out in Bel Air. Looks like he can afford it. Who's he running with, you know? Yeah, some guy who's lighting cigarettes. What's that? Some guy who's lights his cigarettes oh, all the yeah. time. Supposed to be some gun from the east. Thinks he's such a big shot. A cheap kind, you know. Kind of guy who has his suits cut so as you can see they're carrying a gun. You know, cheap. You know this fellow's name? Uh, a couple of times I heard old Jim call him Phil. Phil something, I don't know. A real dark. Hey, fellas, uh, how about a drink? I'm feeling real bad. You're still on age? Oh, no, 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 no. I swear to you, I... I haven't had a pop in a long time. I'm trying to get off the stuff. Figured if I could get drunk enough, it wouldn't be so bad. Rough go. Come on, how about a drink? We've had enough, Dave. You know if Bolin's carrying a gun? I don't know for sure. I didn't see one. This darb Phil's got one. Got his coat cut so as you can see it. Real cheap, small time. You want to show us where you saw Bolin? I'll take you there if I have to carry you on my back. What a way to treat a friend. All the times I've helped him when, when he's had a bad yen, and now he treats me this way, Real dog in a manger. I got a lot of friends in this town, a lot of buddies. Word gets out about Jimmy's finished. Miserable bum. I think about the rough times him and me had together. I, I get ill. I ill. All right, let's go. If you nail him, are you going back to the joint? Suppose so. How long are they going to give him? That's up to the court. Ain't a court in the world that'll give that bum what he's got coming. All I want to see is that he gets it good. I want to see him turn the key and lose it after what he did to me. I'll tell you something else, too. Yeah, what's that? He's building a big habit. Is he hooked? He ain't chipping with it. I bet money he's shooting four or five caps a day. That much easy. You sure about that? Why'd I lie to you? What reason I got to lie? All right, Hyde, let's go. Hey, um, how about a quick belt before we go, huh? I'm, I'm feeling rocky. Just, just a quick one. Let's pick up Bowling first, then we'll see what we can do for you. Yeah, and then you'll take care of it, huh? We'll see. Yeah, just so he gets his every pound. Can't wait to see the look on his face when he finds out the whistle's been blown. Oh, I can't wait. Neither can we. Let's go. 9.13 p.m. Hyde, Frank, and I drove over to West 7th Street. Our informant pointed out the bar where he'd seen the suspect, Boland. He told us that when he'd seen him last, Boland said that he'd be in the bar that night. We called the office and told them where we were, and then we went into the place. Boland wasn't there, but the bartender said that he was expected. The three of us sat down in a booth at the rear of the place, and we ordered black coffee for our informant. We waited. 9.30 p.m. 10. 10.30. There he is, coming in now. When you saw him this morning, did he say this guy Phil was going to be here? No, not to me. How about it, Joe? You better get out of here, Dave. Use the side door, will you? Yeah. We'll check with you later. All right, let's go. Boland? What? You're Jim Boland? What do you want? Police officers, you're under arrest. All right, Boland, come on, get up. Come on, on your feet. Stand still. He's clean, Joe. What's going on? What are you pulling a deal like this for? I didn't cause any trouble. All right, come on, let's go. Somebody blew the whistle on me. Somebody did. I... I'm going to find out, and I'm going to get to him. I swear I'll get to him. Where's Phil? Huh? Phil, where is he? I don't know what you're talking about. All right, Bolin, let's go. Listen, you tell whoever it was blew the whistle, they better start looking for a place to hide, because I'm going to get to him if it's the last thing I do. You called it. What? It might be. 10.14 p.m. We returned the suspect to the city hall and questioned him. He refused to admit any complicity in the holdups. He refused to tell us who Phil was. We talked to him for five and a half hours and we got nothing. At 3.30 a.m. he was taken over to the main jail and booked in on suspicion of robbery. We checked out the room that he told us he was living in, but we were unable to come up with anything that would tie him in with the holdups. Three days passed. 
On Tuesday, April 21st at 8.30 p.m., a special show-up was arranged. Out of the seven victims who were present, five said that the suspect looked very much like the man who had held them up, but none of them would give us a positive identification. Jim Boland was returned to the felony cell block, and we talked to the victims. All of them commented on the fact that the suspect we had in custody was the same height, the same weight, and had the same general coloring and appearance as the person who'd robbed them. However, none of them would swear positively that he was the person. At 10.15 p.m., Frank and I went up to the felony section and had Boland brought from his cell to the interview room. His previous sullen attitude had changed considerably. How'd I make out? You got any identification? Five of them say you look like the man. Well, they're wrong. They gotta be. I didn't have nothing to do with those holdups. If they say I'm the guy, then they're making a bad mistake. They seem pretty sure about what they say. They can't be. Look, they saw me behind the screen. You bring them up here. Let me talk to them face to face. I'll talk to them. I got nothing to hide. Just let me talk to them. You know we can't do that. I always thought it was up to you to prove a guy was innocent as well as trying to make him for a job. That's right, it is. Then why don't you give me a break? I got no part in these heights. You look good for him. Probably a lot of other guys who do too, but that don't mean they are. Come on, what do I have to do to make you believe? Why don't you come off of this, Boland? We got you going in. Why not play it smart and cop out? How can I cop out when I got no part in it? I'll lay it out for you. The M.O. used in the jobs matches yours. Big deal. A lot of guys work the way I used to. Physical description we got matches you. So I haven't got two heads. A lot of guys look like me. The beef in the bar. If you didn't have anything to worry about, why'd you start the fight? How'd I know who you guys were? Maybe you was out to pull a high Oh, that's a nice try, Boland, but it won't work. You knew we were officers. Now, why don't you save us a lot of time and tell us the truth here? You guys wouldn't know it if it bit you. There's one way to find out. Yeah? Try it. You got a cigarette? Here. You want one? Yeah. Okay. I'll level with you. I figured you was after me for PV. I didn't have any idea about the 211 rat. That why you started the fight? I swear it is. How about the money you got? Where'd it come from? I got real lucky with Paradise. You expect us to believe that? That's the way things are. Where'd you hit the luck? I can't tell you that. It wouldn't help any. Give you an alibi. Either you believe it or you don't. That's the way it was. I'm trying to level with you. We got a rumble at your back on H. Now, how about that? Where'd you hear that? We heard it. Yeah. Well, you tell them I haven't had a pop in over four years. Not since I went up the joint. How about this Lincoln you're driving? Don't belong to me. Who owns it? Phil. Now we're back to that. You're going to tell us who Phil is? Listen, the guy's a friend of mine. I don't want to bring nothing down on him. He's leaving you way out in the cold. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, if I tell you, he won't know, will he? Not from us. Okay. Name's Phil Spence. How well do you know him? Say hello to, buy him a drink, that's all. That's not the way we get it. I don't care how you get it. That's the way it is. Mr. Spence, you ever follow him? I hear yes. What for? 211, ADW. Where? Here, California. He on parole? Now he got out clean. At least that's the way I hear it. You know where we can pick him up? I told you I buy him a beer once in a while. I don't pay his rent. You're the one who said you wanted to go down the middle. All right, but I'm giving it to you that way. I, I don't know where his pad is. Does he work for a living? I don't know. I never heard him talk about a job. You know who he runs with? Some guy named Ed. You ever see him? No. You know where he can be reached? Sometimes they hang around the bar where you pick me up. How about it, fellas? You're going to buy the story? Yeah, we'll check it out. I swear it. I got no part in it. Sure, you got me cold for PV. I know I got to go back for that, but I want nothing to do with the rest. We'll check it out. You do that. You'll find out what I said's the truth. You're willing to identify these two other guys for us? How do you mean? Check over some mugs? Sure. Just as long as you believe me. We'll see. You won't regret it. A lot of things I can tell you if you get me out of this. A lot of information I can give you. Let's go. You're going to give me a break, huh? We'll check it. Say, either one of you guys got some extra butts. I'm out. Yeah. Here, take these. Thanks. Anything else you need? Not unless you can fix it for me to shave. We'll talk to the jailer about it. <laughs> Beard's starting to itch. I'd like to get it off. We'll see what we can do. 
You're going to start checking my story now? That's right. You go to work on it. You'll find out. Yeah, sure. I'll pay you back. Just believe me. I'll pay you back. Figure he's telling the truth? It's hard to say. The identifications weren't too sure. Everything else is. There's only one way. Yeah. Check him out. Listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Tuesday, April 21st. After we left the suspect, Jim Boland, at the main jail, Frank and I went back to the city hall and checked the name Phil Spence through RI. There were nine packages carrying records for men with that name. Two of them had served terms for robbery in the state penitentiary at Folsom, California. We got off communications to George Bratton up at Sacramento and to Washington, requesting information on known criminals having that name. 12.30 a.m., we went back to the jail and had Boland brought from his cell. We showed him the mug shots from the packages we had, but he failed to give us an identification. We talked to him about Phil Spence. He gave us all of the information he could about the missing suspect's habits. At this point, we were still not sure that Boland wasn't implicated in the holdups, but we had to check out what facts we had. The one point which seemed to verify Boland's story was that the victims were unable to give a positive identification of him. 1.30 a.m., we went back to the office and checked out for the night. The following morning, Wednesday, April 22nd, we started to recheck Boland's story of his movements during the times of the holdups. Upon re-questioning some of the witnesses, we found that they weren't as sure as they had been of the facts. That afternoon, we got a kickback from Sacramento. It contained three more possibles. CII said that they were sending us mug shots of the men by airmail special delivery. Boland gave us a list of places Spence was known to frequent. We came up with the name of a girl that the suspect was known to see from time to time. We got the address and we went out to talk to her. Doesn't look like she's home. We better check with the manager, huh? Yeah. Yeah? Eugene Schofield? Why? We'd like to see her. Who are you? Police officers. Come in. I'm her. What do you want? I'd like to ask you a few questions. No, I figured that. Move some of those clothes and sit down. Can I get you anything? Drink, maybe? No, ma'am. Thank you. All right. What do you want to talk about? How long has it been since you've seen Phil Spence? Who says I know him? We understand you know him pretty well. Going out with him a couple of times, that's the end of it. When did you see him last? A couple of days ago. Monday night, I think. You know where he is now? No. You know where he lives? Some hotel over on Flower. You know the name of the place? No. You ever been there? No. You know what Spence does for a living? Well, I don't know. Got some kind of a job, I guess. You ever talk to you about what he does? I told you, I'd just been out with him a couple of times. I didn't ask for his birth certificate. I just said I'd go out with him. What are all these questions about anyway? What do you want to talk to Phil about? It's a personal matter. What kind of trouble is he in now? You've been in trouble before? I don't know. Just with you cops around, must be something he's done. Spence got any close friends that you know of? A couple. You know who they are? One of them is a guy named Jim something. How about the rest? Fellow he calls Ed. What do you know about Ed? Not much. Is he in it too? Ma'am? He mixed up in this personal thing you want to talk to Phil about? Maybe. Never did like him. I always figured he'd end up getting Phil in trouble. Phil see quite a bit of him? Yeah. I think he's maybe in some kind of business deal with Ed. You ever say what the deal was? Not to me. One night a couple of weeks ago, he got real looped and him and Phil were talking about it. What'd they say? I don't know. Phil told me to go pat on my nose. I don't know what they said. And how do you know what they talked about? Because when I came back, I heard Phil say something about how the deal was going to work out all right. Then he saw me and they shut up. Phil owns a car, doesn't he? Yeah, a new Lincoln. You ever let anybody else drive it? Well, once in a while, he lets Jim take it. Not often. Phil's kind of touchy about the car. Say, how'd you fellas know about me? Routine, checking Phil out. Your name came up. Oh, that's all, huh? Ma'am? 
I'm not mixed up in it. You can answer that better than we can. Yeah. Well, I want you to know that I'm not. I got nothing to do with Phil. Mm -hmm. I mean it. I just met the guy. I had a couple of dates with him. He's hung up in something. I got nothing to do with it. You got to believe that. When are you going to see Spence again? Well, you believe what I tell you, don't you? If he's in trouble, I got no part of it. When are you going to see him again, lady? You mean when have I got a date? Yes, ma'am. Tomorrow night. He's going to pick me up when I get through work. Where's that? Bar down in Olympic. I'm a hostess there. Is that where you met him? Yeah, he came in one night. We got to talk. He asked me for a date. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about it, though. Ma'am? Well, about how I met him. I don't usually go out with the customers. Boss doesn't like it. It's just that Phil seemed kind of different. That's the reason I went out with him. I want you to get that straight. Mm-hmm. Just a minute. Expecting anybody? No, I don't know who it is. Want me to open it? Yeah, go ahead. What took you so long, honey? I got company, Phil. I know? I don't think so. Fine. You Phil Spence? Yeah, who are you? Police officers would like to talk to you. What about? Might be better if we went downtown. Or who? What? I don't want to go downtown. You don't have much to say about it, mister. It's a pinch. But makes you happy, mark it down that way. You want to shake him, Frank? Yeah. Yeah, wait. Cop. What are you doing, breaking up my place? Get out of here! Get out of here, my deal coming in and breaking up a girl's apartment. Who's going to pay for all this? Who's going to make it right? Just look at the place. Oh, shut up. Why don't you tell me they were here? Why didn't you say something? All right, Spence, let's go. I'm coming. All I want to know is who told you. Who yapped? That lousy Eddie, I'll bet. He's the one. Never should have picked him up. He with you on the jobs? He told you, didn't he? How about Jim Boland? He in with you, too? Oh, that guy hasn't got enough sense to come in out of the rain. He's worse than that. Should know not to get mixed up with that dumb Eddie. I should know. Always happens. Yeah. You're on with a jerk, you're going to get tripped up. Lousy Eddie shooting off his mouth. Hadn't been for him, you'd never got us. I'm going to tell him off. What's the difference? You told him everything they wanted to know, you're all going to jail. Why don't you shut up? You're always wrong, sister. Not this time. Let's go. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On August 13th, trial was held in Department 92 of Superior Court of the State of California in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. <laughs> Philip Donald Spence and Edwin Floyd Morse were tried and convicted on four counts of robbery in the first degree and were sentenced as prescribed by law. Robbery in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than five years. Jim Nathan Boland was released to the state adult authority for action on violation of his parole. He was returned to San Quentin for the balance of his original term. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Herb Bygren, Vic Perrin, Michael Ann Barrett. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely new Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Announcer George Fenneman, whose centennial is today, promoting the Dragnet TV show on an episode of the radio series in the fall of 1953. 
We'll hear Mr. Fenneman in one of his famous appearances with Groucho Marx in just a moment. But first, I need to remind you that you're listening to the big broadcast, that I'm Murray Horwitz, and that this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. When I was working at NPR in the 1990s and we started the news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we knew we needed an announcer who'd be a comedy sidekick for the host, who turned out to be Peter Sagal. The show's producer, Doug Berman, came up with the perfect idea, the NPR newscaster and theater veteran, Carl Castle. But the inspiration for that role was the man who, in a very different way, had been Groucho Marx's partner in comedy, on the classic show, You Bet Your Life. As we said back in the 90s, we need a George Fenneman. We're about to hear Mr. Fenneman now, and you'll hear how he functioned as both an announcer and a comic foil. And you'll hear him as one of the great commercial spokesmen of all time. Groucho Marx makes a joke about the jive talk word George, meaning good or satisfactory. He also makes jokes about being pursued by the boss, in a way that's now forbidden by law. There are references to the -the turn-of-the-century politician William Jennings Bryan, the racehorse Seabiscuit, and the Revolutionary War hero Ethan Allen. It's vintage Groucho and vintage George Fenneman, who would have turned 100 years old today. It comes from NBC, October 10th, 1951, and you bet your life. The secret word tonight is street. S-T-R-E-E-T. Really? You bet your life. The more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present the best of Groucho. Yes, friends, it's a Groucho summertime. By popular demand from your letters, from rating histories, and the acclaim of critics... The DeSoto Plymouth Dealers bring you selected shows from You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. Groucho Marx is on vacation, friends, and will return in the fall. Until then, it's fun and laughs each week this summer as we proudly present some of the best of Groucho's past shows. And here he is, the one, the only... Why doesn't he give up? Oh, that's me! Well, here I am again with $1,500 for one of our couples tonight. The word tonight is uh, street. Dave Street, I guess. Uh, Never mind that hollow laughter. (laughs) George Fenneman, who's supposed to try for the big money? What dignity we have there, George Fenneman. Well, we asked if there were... Do you mind if I call you Mr. Fenneman? No, that's perfectly all right. Okay. What Uh, about plain George? I like that, too. Isn't that a kind of a... Musicians use that now? George. Boy, that's George. What does that mean? I don't know. Why do you stand there and give me answers like that if you don't know what's going on? Well, I can say I'll get no knowledge here tonight. Huh? Ready? Yes. Okay. I may, you know my attorney is out front tonight. I may take the whole thing up with him later. Uh, we he may slap a writ of runch and quantum on you. <laughs> we asked if there were any young single people present, and I'd like to get married someday if they found the right partner. Just before we went on the air, we selected Miss Isola Mitchell and Mr. Park Bryan. You're making that up? There's nobody named Isola. You just made You're going to meet her in just a second. Folks, come in here and meet Groucho Marx. 
Well, land sakes, yes, yes, there is, I guess. Well, welcome, kids, for the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Well, let's see, you two would uh, like to get married, is that right, if you found the right partner? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'll see what I can do about it. Miss uh, Mitchell, is that right? Yeah. Uh, Isola Mitchell? Isn't Isola something you use when you want to fry uh, <laughs> potatoes or something? Huh? I hope not. <laughs> no. You don't think you could fry potatoes with that red hair and everything, huh? I think no. you could. You look like a pretty hot dish to me, uh, Miss Mitchell. <laughs> what is the, the derivative of Isola? That's a kind of a curious name, isn't it? Yeah. What is it? Uh... Indian. Oh, you're an Indian? <laughs> a little bit. Oh. Mr. Bryan. That, that's you? Yes, sir. Not William Jennings, huh? I'm a descendant. Are you a descendant? Yes. Oh, well, you can get buried any place, huh? <laughs> what is your hometown, uh, Park Bryan? In huh? Kansas City, Missouri. How, how old are you, uh, Park? 23. 23. Uh, would you like to go around the park once, uh, Azola? <laughs> how, how old are you, Azola? 19. Nine, well, you don't have to tell me exactly, you know, just give me an idea. <laughs> Do you have any particular reason, uh, reason for wanting to get married, Miss Mitchell? Well, it's easier. It's easier life. It's you... easier than what? <laughs> working. <laughs> easier than working? Mm-hmm. Are you laboring under the delusion that once you're married, you, your labors will cease? <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> but you prefer that kind of work? Uh, yeah. Hanging over the back fence and talking it over with the neighbors? Huh? <laughs> well, I guess that's better than being pursued by the boss, although I'm not sure of that. Huh? <laughs> Have you ever been pursued by the boss? No. You haven't? Well, you will before the evening is over. Huh? <laughs> I happen to be the boss around here. What is... <laughs> uh, Bryant uh, Park, uh, what is your excuse for toying with disaster? I assume you want to get married, too. Huh? Well, I think I'd find it cheaper than dating. Then I'd like to carry on a family strain. Oh, well, you'll find that's quite a strain. <laughs> In, in other words, you, you think you're, you're right for marriage, is that so? Oh, I hope so, sir. What sort of man are you looking for, um, uh, Isola? You're not interested in the good-looking <laughs> debonair type, are you? Oh, yes. <laughs> and why have you been ignoring me? Uh? <laughs> Apparently, your philosophy is, why take stale bread when there's cake around you, right? <laughs> Let's find out something about you two, uh, Park. What sort of work do you do? Oh, I'm a male model. You're a model? Now, models are girls, aren't they? Well, men model, too. We have shirt ads and um, overcoats and such things that are necessary to display for the public. And probably the only ones you've noticed are girls. Why did you have to uh, put the word probably in there? <laughs> what is the percentage of men models to uh, female models? I like to have certain figures at my fingertips, you know. I'd say about 25 women to every man model. Well, do you think I could be a model? Possibly. Pretty guarded answer, isn't it? (laughs) What kind of a model do you think I could be? Well, there's the leading man. Well, that sounds like my type. What are the specifications necessary for that? Well, he wears a 38 to 40 coat, about a 15 and a half inch collar, 33 inch sleeve. All right, now let's say I'm a leading man. Now, what other classes are there? More and more in my line. Who's a man of distinction? (laughs) I'd be interested in hearing you describe a man of distinction. I mean, standing up. (laughs) 
<laughs> a man that uh, might go 18 holes of golf and then sip a mint julep. I suppose that might describe him. Well, you're getting close, but I'm more the type who sips 18 mint juleps after one hole. <laughs> Well, what is there left for me that I could model a, an ironing board? The old fisherman type. I... Could you let me have that again, please? Well, the old fisherman type of model. The old fisherman type. Uh, you mean I'd, I'd have to pose as a can of salmon? Going upstream? Not what, exactly. what is the old fisherman type? Uh, one that might have a weather-beaten face, a salty look about him. I can't picture anybody who'd look like that. Uh, can you? Can you, Isola? Isola. Don't leave me sitting here high and dry. Well, that's the story of my life. I start out yearning to be a leading man, and I wind up as an old fish. Are you showing any interest in, in Park? Oh, yes, he's a nice boy. Would you like a date so you could learn more about him? That sounds... might be fun. I'm sure it will. I'll meet you right after the show and we can... <laughs> we'll go to some quiet spot and we'll discuss it, right? We can even go fishing. I'm the old fisherman type. You know. <laughs> Tell me, have you ever kissed a mackerel? <laughs> Well, I must say, you make an enchanting couple, and I hope you're very happy together. Now, in just one minute, you're going to play your life. You bet your life for a chance at the $1,500 question. But first, pay close attention to this. Remember the days when you had to get out and crank a car to get it started? Some work, wasn't it? Then along came the self-starter. It took all the work out of starting. And now, DeSoto brings you another sensational development. Full power steering that takes the work out of steering. Think of it. DeSoto Full Power Steering lets you turn the steering wheel with one finger, whether your car is in motion or standing still. It's as easy as dialing a phone. Parking becomes a cinch. Driving is easier and safer and less tiring. DeSoto Full Power Steering is the greatest advance in driving ease and convenience since the self-starter. And your DeSoto Plymouth dealer wants you to try it by taking the five-mile trial. Take the five-mile trial and discover DeSoto full power steering from behind the wheel of either the mighty DeSoto Fire Dome 8 with the 160-horsepower Fire Dome V8 engine or the DeSoto Power Master 6. See your DeSoto Plymouth dealer tomorrow. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth, the low-priced car most like high-priced cars. Now, uh, let's see how well you work together as a team. Uh, George? Yes, sir. Would you mind explaining the rules to this uh, young, love-happy couple? All right. You uh, bet as much of your $20 as you want on each of four questions, and the couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the $1,500 DeSoto Plymouth question later in the show. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build your $20. You selected comic strip characters. Here's your first question. How much of the 20 will you try? Fifteen. Fifteen. Sam Ketchum is the assistant of what famous comic strip detective? Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy is right. You're off to a good start. You have $35. All right. Remember, you're going for $1,500 tonight. How much of the $35 would you bet on this one? Well, we'll try 30 30 
Dinty Moore has been supplying his friend with corned beef and cabbage for years. What is his friend's name? Jiggs. Jiggs is right. Now have $65. Here's your third question. How much are you going to bet now? 60 Little Beaver is the sidekick of what cowboy? Red Rider. Red Rider is right. I knew you'd know that. Now you've climbed to $125. All right, here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the $125 are you going to try? $120? Yeah. $120. $120. <laughs> Wimpy is the hamburger-eating friend of what comic strip sailor? Popeye. Popeye is right. And you wind up with a total of $245. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. Uh, we invited some men from Las Vegas to the program tonight. And just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Mr. Clemens Powell. <laughs> His partner is a young lady from our audience, Miss Susanna Stilts. Folks, come in here and meet Groucho Marx. Well, welcome, folks, for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Just step right over there, Miss Stiltz. That's right. Miss Susanna Stiltz, uh, what kind of a name is that? Uh, German, I reckon. German, you reckon? Well, let's hear you reckon in German. I've never heard of it. <laughs> you say Einstein Drive here? No, nothing, no. huh? Well, uh, that's a German name. Uh, may I ask your age, uh, Susanna? 26. And uh, how tall are you, Miss Stiltz? Five feet. Five feet, huh? Mm hmm. Only five feet tall. You're the shortest stilts I've ever seen. <laughs> I, are you married? No, sir. Why not? A cute-looking girl like you? Well, five foot all around? I don't know why you're not. <laughs> Where are you from, Susanna? Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, huh? Mr. Powell, Clemens Powell, huh? That's yes, a pretty fancy name, uh, Clemens. Yes, uh, thank you. Where, where are you from originally? Odessa, Russia. Oh, that's not a Russian name, is it? Clemens Powell? No. You sound like a watering resort in Michigan. <laughs> now, uh, Mr. Fenneman says you're from Las Vegas, uh, Mr. Uh, Powell. What, what do you do there? I work at the Flamingo Hotel as a dice dealer, roulette, and blackjack. Oh, well, are you a double dealer or just a... <laughs> well, let me get this straight now. You're an expert at dice, roulette, and blackjack? That's right, sir. I see. If the dice and roulette don't work, you use a blackjack. Is that so? <laughs> Susanna, is that the way they do it in Tennessee? Well, I don't know. I don't gamble. You don't? No wonder you're not married. <laughs> That's a very pretty name, Susanna. It's kind of an old, real southern name. You know, oh, Susanna, oh, don't you fly with me. I'll hear from ASCAP in the morning. What do you... What do your friends call you, Susie? Tootsie. <laughs> Well, I'm not crazy about Tootsie. I'll just call you Sea Biscuit, huh? I everything but insurance. Where do you work, Sue? At the Permaflex Cooperation. Permaflex? Permaflux. Permaflux, <laughs> huh? Just, just what is a Permaflux? Well, it's where they make uh, headsets and this transformers. Huh? Transformers. Oh, transformers. What, what is your job there, Susie? <laughs> uh, Tootsie? I put spaghetti on the transformers, you know. You put spaghetti on a transformer? Well, they're back Is this with cheese or do you just do it plain? <laughs> no, it's rubber. Rubber spaghetti? <laughs> well, uh, come on, explain this. This sounds a little preposterous. Well, Nobody goes around putting rubber on spaghetti. 
The transformer's about that big and round, and it has four little wires. And you put the spaghetti on, two of them, and then you turn the top down. <laughs> you threw it. Did you pick this up all by yourself, uh, Susan? I must come and watch you sometime when you're really rolling. You know, I've always wanted to see Tootsie Roll. <laughs> Do you plan to, to make a career of this job, uh, Toots? Well, I'd like to have something that I could think a little more. <laughs> Fill my thinking, you know. <laughs> In other words, you'd like a job where you can use your noodle instead of your spaghetti. Is that <laughs> well, it's certainly been fun and educational talking to you two. And Susanna, if you ever go to Las Vegas, don't make the mistake of asking for a southern fried flamingo because they don't serve it there at all. Now, here's some more advice. When you want service, take your car to the man who knows best. You're the soda Plymouth dealer. And uh, now you're going to play your bet your life. Don't, don't go away, Susan, for a chance at the $1,500 question. This is kind of small potatoes for you, Mr. Powell, isn't it? Now, uh, all you've got to do is run your $20 and more, and more than our other couples. I can't tell you how much uh, you have to win, but Mr. Fenneman is going to remind our listeners. A girl and the male model won $245. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected college teams. Here's your first question. How much of the 20 will you bet? Fifteen. All right. What college team is known as the Indians? Uh, Stanford. That's pretty good for a Russian. <laughs> Off to a good start, you have $35. I'll bet there's very few people in Odessa who would be able to guess that answer. <laughs> All right. Remember, you're going for $1,500 tonight. Now, how much of the $35 will you bet this time? Mm, Thirty. What college team is known as the Bruins? UCLA. Colin. UCLA is right. <laughs> You now have sixty-five dollars. Sixty-five. Now, how much will you bet this time? Sixty-five. We'll bet uh, sixty. What college team is known as the Panthers? Uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is right. I mean, right. You now have one hundred and twenty-five dollars. That's a lot of money outside of Las Vegas. Now, is your last chance to beat the other couples? How much of the hundred and twenty-five? Bet it all. Huh? All of it. Bet it all. All of it. What college team is known as the Wolverines? Michigan. Michigan is right. <laughs> Besides which, you have $250. Thank Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. We asked for volunteers with unusual occupations, and just before we went on the air, Mr. Tex Schultz was selected. His partner is a young housewife from the audience, Mrs. Julie Fisher. Folks, come in here and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to your Bet Your Life. Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Uh, Mrs. Julie Fisher. Yes. And uh, Mr. Tex uh, Schultz. Yes, sir. Where are you from, Tex? Texas. Whereabouts? Sterling City. Sterling City. Where are you from, uh, Julie? From Istanbul. Istanbul? What part of Texas is that in? <laughs> oh, Istanbul is in Turkey. Really? They have turkeys down in Texas? <laughs> I don't know. We played a turkey all through Texas the whole season. <laughs> How, how'd you meet your husband, Julie? I met him in Turkey. You met him inside of a turkey? Were you the stuffing? Or... No, I met him in Turkey. I had my bathing suit 
and I was swimming in the hotel. You were swimming in the hotel? Yes. No, the hotel was near the sea, and I was swimming over there. Then all the travelers... You were swimming over the hotel? I don't understand. <laughs> I was... I had my bathing suit, and yeah. I was swimming near the hotel. And the where hotel. was your bathing suit? Oh, my bathing suit. Yes, I had. So, here you are swimming around your bathing suit, and what happened? Then... All the travelers came to have their breakfast. He was, they were going what is that? Travelers. Travelers? Yes. They were going to Pakistan. The plane stopped in Turkey, Istanbul. Then they had to come in the hotel to have their breakfast. I see. And they wanted to take our pictures. Some men... Take your pictures? Yes. Oh, you weren't alone? No, many girls we were. All Turkish girls we were swimming. Then they came... No men swimming, just girls? Oh, but the men working daytime, you know. But daytime, about three o'clock. Then, sure, the girl was swimming. And when they swim with bathing suits, they wanted to take... <laughs> oh, don't you get it like that? I can't... <laughs> We don't seem to be making much progress with this story, eh? Well, there you are now. You were swimming around with a lot of girls and all the men were working. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this plane stopped at Istanbul and they all got off and went in the hotel. What happened? Then they came down. They said, may I take your pictures? I said, okay, go ahead, take. And one came near me. He said, give me your address. I will send your pictures. I said, okay, I gave him. What do you mean? You carry a fountain pen for writing underwater for autographs? No. You didn't happen to have a, a fountain pen with he you? He had his suit Oh, he him. had a suit on, huh? Sure, he was not swimming. He just oh. was going over Pakistan to play stop here. <laughs> <laughs> How far is Pakistan from the water where you were swimming? But Istanbul, Pakistan is in Asia. Oh, I see. Then, after was one week later, I got a letter from here, but not my pictures. He said, you my dream girl. I like you very much. I want to marry you. Oh, I was surprised. <laughs> I was not expecting this kind of thing. I found my girlfriend. She knew how to speak English. I said, can you answer this letter? She said, okay. Then the answer. Sent. What did you write him? The answer, I said, give up. His name is Bob. What was his first name? His first name this is... This wasn't Bebop, was it? Bob, Bob Fisher. Oh, Bob Fisher. Fisher, oh. yes. Then I answered him. Up, was after a Did month. you remember what you wrote him? I mean, the gist of this? I don't mean precisely. I mean approximately. Oh, yes. What? I said, because he wrote me, you very lovely looking, many things. And I said, you very handsome also. He was really handsome. He, he was. still handsome, yes. Tall, dark hair. Is he still standing by the water with a fountain pen? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't in the water. No, he didn't. <laughs> well, uh, what happened? Did you, uh, are you going to get married or what? Oh, yeah. He went to Pakistan. He wrote me about eight months. You certainly made a lot of trips to Pakistan. <laughs> This guy was a traveling fool, huh? No, we sent him once. You are bringing back him. He's working in the North Africa with government. What doing? Construction building. Oh, I see. Airport. 
Oh, airport. Mm -hmm. I, I, you say, where are you from, Tex? <laughs> Texas. Texas. <laughs> He's a garrulous fellow, isn't he? Eh? <laughs> Uncanny how I guess these things. What sort of work do you do, Tex? I'm a yo-yo demonstrator. story a, a night is enough of this sort, Tex. So what, actually, what do you do? You, you say you're a yo-yo demonstrator? What is a yo-yo? Well, uh, a yo-yo is a piece of maple wood turned into a cylinder. Yeah. That's a yo-yo. Well, how does a yo-yo uh, operate? Well, you uh, tie the string on your middle finger and you turn your hand up and to the point of your shoulder and you throw it down. Okay, I've got the yo-yo down. Now, how do I how do I get it back up again? A little jerk and it comes up. What's that? I say a little jerk and it comes up. Well, it takes two to play this game, huh? A big jerk and a little one. Julie, let's talk uh, Taiki a little more. I don't think I've ever heard Taiki uh, spoken, Julie. Would you mind saying a few words in Spanish? Turkish. Well, Turkish. Okay, I can tell you. Of course, I'll kiss you. Do you really want me to kiss you? Oh, I didn't say kiss me. You didn't. No, I said America is wonderful country. Oh, in that case, I'll kiss you in the name of Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys of Fort Ticonderoga. <laughs> Well, you make a lovely couple, and, I, and I've learned a lot about yo-yos and turkey, and that's what I'm going to have on Thanksgiving. <laughs> a stuffed yo-yo. <laughs> now you're going to play your bet your life for a chance at the $1,500 question. You run your $20 and more than the other couples. I can't tell you how much you have to win, but George is going to remind our listeners. The young lady and the man from Las Vegas won $250. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected state capitals. Here's your first question. How much will you bet? Uh. Fifteen. Mm -hmm. What is the capital of Arizona? Phoenix. Phoenix is right. You're on your way already. You have thirty-five dollars. You going to kiss him if he wins all the money? Oh yes. <laughs> Would you kiss him anyway? If he won't win, no. <laughs> Maybe going for fifteen hundred dollars tonight. How much of your thirty-five will you bet on your second question? Thirty. Mm -hmm. What is the capital of Arkansas? Little Rock. Little Rock is right. You're on your way. You have $65. Here's your third question. How much of the 65? 60. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. What is the capital of Georgia? Atlanta. Atlanta is right. You're really climbing. You have $125. Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much will you bet? 120. 120. 120. All right. What is the capital of New York? Albany. Albany is right. I give a big <laughs> you wind up with $245. And that means the young lady and the man from Las Vegas with $250 get the chance in just one moment at the DeSoto Plymouth $1,500 question. <laughs> Here's the young lady and the man from Las Vegas, all set for the DeSoto Plymouth $1,500 question, Groucho. 
All right, now here we go for $1,500. I give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you. So think carefully and please no help from the audience. Here it is. Ready? The first American spelling book was written in 1784 by a Connecticut Yankee. He also was the originator of the spelling bee. What is his name? What's the answer you two have decided upon? Smith. No, I'm sorry. The correct answer is Noah Webster. So that means the big question next week will be worth $2,000. Well, you lost the big money, but uh, you won uh, how much in the quiz? $250 in well, the quiz. Well, that's not too bad. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. Thank you. And all of our contestants show tonight. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this same time for the best of Groucho from the You Bet Your Life series. Don't miss the best of Groucho on television, too. Also presented by the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth. Two great cars, both products of the Chrysler Corporation. And when you drive in, tell them Groucho sent you. Good night, folks, and remember, see the DeSoto Fire Dome 8... Tomorrow. Folks, here's a reminder from the National Safety Council. Don't stick your neck out in traffic. You Bet Your Life, transcribed from Hollywood, is produced by John Goodell. Directed by Robert Dwan and Bernie Smith. Music by Jerry Fielding. This is George Fenneman signing off for the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers from coast to coast. We're celebrating not Groucho Marx tonight, but rather his partner, George Fenneman, whom you just heard in that You Bet Your Life show from October 10th, 1951. Today would have been Mr. Fenneman's 100th birthday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Now, we've got a science fiction salute to veterans, whom we officially celebrate with a national holiday tomorrow. It's a radio drama that really explores the commitment and conflicts that lead people in the military to dedicate themselves to the grinding and difficult and often life-and-death work of military service. It's a story called The Reluctant Heroes, and it comes from December 19, 1956, NBC and X-1. Countdown for blast-off. X-5... Four, three, two, X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. 
the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight, The Reluctant Heroes by Frank M. Robinson. Chapman was awake. The others sprawled on bunks 20 inches wide with clearance of 24 inches between layers. They breathed heavily, taking an air that had been breathed for 18 months, subject to certain modifications to remove carbon dioxide and replenish oxygen by the catalytic action of the Harcourt King unit on silicon dioxide. Outside the single quartzite port, the lunar dawn was breaking. The dead black shadows moved across the crater as the green haze of earthlight gave way to the blinding white of the sun. The telegraph key, which linked the research bunker to the space station in orbit around Earth, chattered as Chapman copied the message into the log pad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a pig's eye... me to stay till the next relief ship lands. Go back to sleep. Uh, it's my turn for breakfast. You gonna stay? Sure. Three years on the moon, they figure I'll be glad to stay for more. Just raise my salary or give me a bonus. Every man has his price. Mm-hmm. They probably figure I like it here. Chapman, you found a home here on the moon. Sure. Canned coffee, canned beans, canned pills, and canned air till your insides feel like they're plated with tin. The little scientific home of tomorrow. Ten steps in any direction. A charming place where you can't take a shower, you can't brush your teeth, and your insides don't even work right. Why did you tell him? No. You kept it short. Check the oxy cycle before you turn on the stove. What's the matter? You sore or something, Chapman? Why shouldn't I be? All I'm trying to do is get a good man to stay on a job a while. Well, they got a fat chance. They figure you found a home here, right, Dole? Uh, why don't you guys shut up till morning? Some of us have to stay here, you know. Some of us aren't going back today. All right, all right. You might as well get up and get a day's work today before the relief rockets do. I got the coffee ready. Coffee? <laughs> Been in a can so long I can taste the glue on the label. They send up an oil can. These elbow joints make me feel like the Tin Woodman in the Wizard of Oz. You can't lubricate vacuum seal joinings. Let it squeak. At least it doesn't leak air. Get that back. That thug for me, will you, Donnelly? Lean over, you fat slob. You put on three more pounds, you won't get off the moon. You won't get through the airlock. Yeah, yeah. Hey, chap. Hmm? Do you think we ought to radio the space station and see if they've left there yet? I talked to him on the last call. The relief ship left 12 hours ago. They should get here in about six and a half hours. Chap, you know what I'm thinking? You've been here twice as long as the rest of us. What's the first thing you're going to do once you get back? I don't know. 
I guess I was trying not to think about that. I haven't been here three years like you have, but I've got plans. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to rent a room in a Hotel Astor over Times Square and just sit at the window and watch the people on the street. And I think I'll see somebody. What somebody? Oh, just somebody. What are you going to do, Donnelly? Well, I'm going to do something practical. First of all, I'm going to turn over my geological samples to the government. Then I'm going to sell my life story to the movies. <laughs> and I think I'll get drunk. <laughs> How about you, Julius? Well, first, I'll get rid of my allocations to the expedition. And then I think I'll go home and see my wife. Then I'll take off my spacesuit. I thought all members of the groups were supposed to be single. They are, and I can see the reasons for it, but who could pass up the money the commission was paying? If I had to do it all over again, me. Hey, hand me a fishbowl. You know, chap, it won't seem like the same old moon without you on it. Like they say in the army, you never had it so good. You found a home here. All right, button up. And remember to check your suits for leaks and check the valves of your oxygen tanks. I've gone out at least 500 times. You've checked me every time. And I check you 500 more. It only takes one mistake. And watch out for blisters under the pumice crust. You go through one of those and that's it, brother. Okay, okay, I've checked. Fine. I never knew you were married. There wasn't much sense in talking about it. You just get to thinking and there's nothing you can do about it. If you talk about it, it just makes it worse. She let you go without any fuss, hmm? No, she didn't make any fuss. I don't think she'd like to see me go either. At least I hope she didn't. You got a girl back home? Yes. Now, you never mentioned that either. For the same reason you didn't mention your wife. You get to thinking about it. You got to get married when you get back? Yeah. Hurry up, will you, Klein? I'm sweating. Somebody ought to build in underarm sprays and spacesuits. Chap, why does somebody have to stay here for stopover? Lots of reasons. You can't get a whole relief crew and let them take over cold. They have to know where things are, how things work, what to watch out for. Then, because you've been here for a year and a half and you know the ropes, you have to watch them to see that they stay alive in spite of themselves. Why was it you on the first trip? You're not a scientist. No, I was the pilot on the first ship. When it occurred to us that someone was going to have to stay over, I volunteered. I thought the others were so important that it was better they take their samples and data back to Earth when the first relief ship came. You wouldn't do it again, though, would you? No. You think Dole will do as good a job as you did? He volunteered. Yeah, he volunteered because he thought it would make him look like a hero. I've lost three years up here, and I don't intend to lose any more. Okay, okay. Check your valve. All right, check. I checked Geiger, CR, Oxy, and Scintilla readings. Everything okay. You packing, chap? Yeah. Oh, listen, uh, Dole, I've got three or four shirts here that are a little too big. I got them from Drysbank in the first group. You want them? Chap, do you think they'll ever have relief ships up here more often than 18 months? I mean, considering the advance No, of... I don't. Not for 10 years. Fuel's too expensive and the trip's too hazardous. Why, on freight charges alone, you're worth your weight in platinum when they send you up here. Won't be so bad. There'll be new men up here. You'll pass a lot of time just getting to know them. Yeah. Listen, chap. I'm engaged back home, you know. Nice girl. You'd like her if you knew her. Right here. Let me show you. 
Yeah, this is a picture of Alice taken at a picnic when we were together. Mm-hmm. See, it's a kind of bad angle because she's really got a better figure than that. But, well, we expected to get married when I got back. I never told her about stopover. She thinks I'll be home tomorrow. I kept thinking that somehow I... You want to trade places with me, don't you? You thought I might stay for stopover again in your place. Well, chap, I know you want to go home, but I couldn't ask any of the others. You're the only one who was qualified. Look, you know my father's pretty well fixed. Chap, we could make it worth your while. It wouldn't mean 18 more months, but they'd be well-paid months. Forget it, Dole. You're staying and I'm going home. yards off the trail. Well, come out of the shadow. I've got a meter jammed over here. You know the regulations. Chapman will kick like a steer. Keep in sight at all times. I'll only be a minute. Got a short circuit my instrument. Time for ten minute check. I've got my hands full. My valves are all right. I know it. You know it. But the book says valve and leak check every ten minutes. Hey. Come out. What? You see a flash? Where? Past Camel's Hump. There. What is that, Northern Lights? No. No, come over here, you fat geologist. Oh, what's the matter with you? That's the relief rocket. Come on. Hey, where are you going? I'm going over the ship. Breathe some air that's a little less used. You think we ought to? Chapman said to stay. Forget Chapman. We're going home. I want to see that beautiful ship. Come on. How about the ten-minute check? Just a formality. Forget it. This is Christmas and Fourth of July rolled into one. Okay, let's go. I can just taste some clean, fresh air. I see it when we top the hump. Maybe we better check. Wait a minute. I'll swing my gauge up. Donnelly. Yeah? How long have we been out? Oh, about a half hour. Yeah? Well, look at your gauge. Well, what are you at? Oh. If we'd started with a rocket, we never would have made it. We would have strangled halfway down the hump. Come on, we better get back to the bunker. Check the lock seal. Okay. All right, open the inner door. Close the lock. Get me out of this fishbowl. It's down. The relief rocket, it's down on the other side of Camel's Hump. Oh, what a beautiful-looking ship. What a beautiful ship. They must be on their way over here now. Chad, they're on their way. We're going home today. Get your RA unit out of that suit and into the dryer. All right, all right. Okay, what's eating you, Dole? Listen, just because the relief rocket lands, it doesn't mean your RA unit is going to dry up by itself. That goes for you, too, Donnelly. Okay. Hey, Chaffin. Yeah? He's taking it pretty hard. He volunteered. Yeah, he volunteered. What a beautiful, beautiful ship.
still teaching at the University who took over a seminar at the age. Hey, hey, look what we got here. Chap, come here. What's the matter? And look what this one's got, a box. Yeah? Look inside, dirt, ordinary dirt with grass. <laughs> Oh, grass. Hey, 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 fellas, it, it feels like grass. That's right, it's real grass. Yeah, and real valuable. Do you realize that current freight rates up here, it's worth about $10 a blade? Oh, shut up. Hey, bud, you mind if I chew a blade? Uh, Mr. Chapman. Yes? Oh, Mr. Chapman. Uh, my name's Everline, captain of the relief ship. I understand you're in charge here. Yeah, you might say so. They didn't have a captain on the first ship, just a pilot and crew. Dole, turn up the oxy cycle in the Harcourt unit. Well... Things have advanced somewhat, huh? Uh, look, Mr. Chapman, is there any place where we can talk together privately? Well, come around the corner of my locker. It's about as private as we can get. Oh, good. What's on your mind? I've always wanted to meet the man who spent more time here than anybody else. You mind if I smoke? You better ask Dole. He's in charge now. Oh. You know, we have big plans for the research station here. Oh? I haven't heard of any. Oh, yes, big plans, big plans. They're working on unmanned open-side rockets now that can carry cargo. Sheet steel for more bunkers like, uh, like this. Mm-hmm. Enable us to enlarge the unit. Have a, a series of bunkers all linked together. Make good laboratories and good living quarters for you people. Have a little privacy for a change. Well, they could use a little privacy up here. Oh, they could. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Chapman. The commission talked it over and they'd like to see you stay. They feel if they're going to enlarge it, add more bunkers and have more men up here, that a, a man of practical experience should be running things. They figure you're the only man who's capable and has had that experience. Is that all? Well, naturally, you'd be paid well. I don't imagine any man would like being here all the time. Now, they're prepared to double your salary, maybe even a bonus in addition. They want you to have full charge. You'd be... Director of Lunar Laboratories. Oh, a title, too. Hmm? Well, the commission said they'd be willing to consider anything else you had in mind. If it's more money... The or... answer is no. I'm not interested in more money for staying because I'm not interested in staying. Money can't buy it, Captain. Look, 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 I'm sorry. I'm afraid you'd have to stay up here to appreciate that. I'm afraid you don't understand the importance Captain, of this. Come over here to the port. Yes? Now, look out there about a hundred yards... Uh, you mean where that, uh, that uh, mound of stones? That's right. We made that cross out of condensed milk cans slid over iron bars. When you get out there, you can still see the footprints in the pumice where we gathered around. It's more than 18 months ago, but there's been no wind to wear those tracks away. They'll be there forever. Oh, I see. Well, who was it? Uh, Dreisbach? Dixon. Dixon. We never got drives back out of the crevasse in Taco. What happened? You want to know? I can give it to you in detail. Sit down and listen. Well, what do you mean? Just wait a minute and I'll show you. Well, why? What is it? Regulations. When someone goes out alone, we have to monitor his radio. Tape recorded. We had the recorder open when Dixon went out. I want you to hear it. Well, all right. I've got the tape right here. It's take me a minute to thread it up. Now, look, Chapman, you don't have to... I want you to listen. Moon, moon, great big silvery moon. Won't you please shine down on me, moon, moon. 
regulations. He had to keep saying something so we know he was all right. Most of the guys just sing. Gentlemen, I'm getting a lovely sonar reading. Hey, if anybody wants to set up a tombstone concession on the moon, this is the spot. <laughs> lovely marble, granite, and rock suitable for lobbies here. It's that old devil moon that... He should have been making a ten-minute check on his oxygen level. He was a good kid. All wrapped up in science. Being on the moon was the opportunity of a lifetime. He thought so much about it that he forgot a lot of little things, like how to stay alive. This was the day before the second group came. All right, gentlemen. I have three or four more readings to take, and I'll be right in. I'm doing fine. Fine, fine, fine. Little stuffy. It's almost as if... Hey, somebody, you get a fix on me, huh? How far am I from the bunker? Must have sprung a leak. When... Hey, hey, hey when did I take the last ten-minute check? How far am I? Down to 22. We took a fix. He was a half hour out. I can't he couldn't make that. Closed. Listen. Listen, you, you gotta come out and get me. You gotta. You gotta come out and get me. It's down to 22. Hey, is somebody listening back there? Hey, is somebody listening? I figure I've got 10 minutes. Just 10 minutes. Listen, you can make it in ten minutes. I'll meet you t towards towards Campbell's Hump. I'll start now. I'll start now. Come and get me, you hear? Come and get me. Chap Chapman? Are, are, are you listening, Chapman? Can you hear me? I'm running. Campbell's Hump. I... Hot. The heat. The RA unit's overloading. Can't dry it up. Gotta run, run, run. <laughs> no use. I can't run. The unit heats up. Gauge is down to 15. I can't make it. I'm gonna... I'm gonna sit down now. You'll find me at number seven radiation meter, about ten yards off the trail. I'm going to sit down, sit down next next to a rock. You're getting getting dizzy. Hey, remember we used to argue? Do you strangle from no oxy or pass out from CO2? Keep tuned to this channel, boys. You'll find out. It's that old devil moon that you... Oh, boy. The earth's going around and around and around. Chap. Chap. You can't get me. Can you?
We didn't have a chance by even 15 minutes. We didn't even go out. There wasn't any sense to it. Well, <clears throat> did, you, uh, uh, did you record after that? Yeah, it's on the tape. You don't want to hear it. We've never put it back. That's why we want you to stay, Chapman. We don't want any more like Dixon. You don't get the point, Captain. I don't want to be the next Dixon. I'm going home now. But you're... Bob Dole is staying for stopover. If there's something important about the project or any changes, you better tell him before you go. Chap, here's one for you. Donnelly? Yo. Dole? Dole? Donnelly? Yo. Ah, Klein. Dole? Donnelly? Boy, did I miss an opportunity. I could have had a year's subscription to the Ladies' Home Journal combined with the American Farmer, all for half price. Ah. <laughs> all right, men, all right. My departure time is an hour and a half. Hey, my sister had twins. Hey, Chap, aren't you going to read your letter? I read it. It's a short letter. Is something wrong? No, no, there's nothing wrong. Dole? What is it, Chap? Get your stuff and leave with the others. What? What do you mean? What are you talking about, Chap? Get your bag and let's go. I'm not going back. Well, what's the matter with you? Did you suddenly decide you don't like the blue sky and the trees? Come on, let's Look, go. Look, Julius, I'm not going back. I haven't got anything to go back for. Or is it the letter? Yeah. Dear Joe, this isn't going to be a nice letter, but I thought it best you should know before you come home. Oh. Isn't very original, is it? Three years is a long time, and a quarter of a million miles is a long distance. You know what, Julius? She can look up in the night sky now and tell him how she was once engaged to the man in the moon. That's a real conversation piece, isn't it? Very funny. Go ahead, Doe. Get going. You're doing a much braver thing than you may think, Mr. Chapman. Yeah, Sure. Like the looks of the moon going away from it, Mr. Dole? It looks a lot better this way. I suppose you'll be glad to get home. I'd rather not talk about it. They were kidding Chapman this morning. They said he found a home on the moon. If we'd stayed an hour or so more, he might have changed his mind and left after all. I'd offered him money. I didn't want to stay for stopover. I was a coward and I offered him money to stay in my place. We're all cowards once in a while. But your offer of money had nothing to do with his staying. He stayed because he had to stay. Because we made him stay. I don't understand. Chapman had a lot to go home for. He was engaged to be married. I know. We got her to write him a letter breaking it off. We knew that it meant that he'd lost one of his main reasons for wanting to go back. I think perhaps he still would have left if we'd stayed and argued him into going. But we left before he could change his mind. That was a lousy thing to do. We had no choice. We didn't use it except as a last resort. 
I don't know of any girl who would have written such a letter if she was really in love with a guy like Chapman. No matter what your reasons. There was only one girl who would have. Ginny Dixon. You see, Chapman's girl was Dixon's sister. She understood what we were trying to tell her. That the new shift had to be safe. That there had to be someone who had to take over and keep those boys alive. She understood that. Because her brother died up there. You mean... He's the only one? I couldn't have done the job? Oh, look, though. Chapman knows how to live on the moon. He's like a, a... A trapper. Who spent all his time in the forest. He knows it like the palm of his hand. He never makes mistakes. He never fails to check things. And he isn't a scientist. He would never become so preoccupied with research... That he'd fail to make checks... And he can watch out for those who do make mistakes... He understood that, too, all too well. It costs a lot of money to send ships up there and establish a colony. You have to have the best men for the job. You get them even if they don't want to do it. Personal lives and viewpoints are expendable. It's got to be that way. There's too much at stake. It's a cold place, the moon. <laughs> You're an odd bunch of guys, you and the others and the groups. Few of you, Dole, come up for the glamour. I know. None of you really like it. And none of you are enthusiastic about it. You're all reluctant to come in the first place, for the most part. You're a bunch of, well, of pretty reluctant heroes. Eighteen months. You'll be up there eighteen more months. Personally, I don't feel happy about that. I don't like having to mess up other people's lives. I hope I won't have to again. Maybe somehow, some way, this one can be patched up. We'll try to. Eighteen months. In the meantime, on behalf of the commission and myself, I feel like a cheap, rotten heel. You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you The Reluctant Heroes, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by Frank M. Robinson and adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in the cast were Mandel Kramer as Chapman, Jim Drummond as Klein, Bob Hastings as Dahl, Dick Hamilton as Donnelly, Jim Stevens as Dixon, and Dick Janiver as Eberline. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. The Reluctant Heroes, a salute to those who up and re-up from X-1 at the very end of autumn in 1956 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5 on this Veterans Day Eve. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. We mentioned that that X-1 episode offered some of what the people we remember and celebrate on Veterans Day go through. 
Well, no American author, and maybe no author in the history of world literature, has gotten inside the mind of a soldier as the writer Stephen Crane did in The Red Badge of Courage, which first appeared in 1894. Famously, the young Mr. Crane was born long after the Civil War had ended, but he described it so vividly in his little book that, in addition to some very harsh criticism, he received astonished praise from veterans of that war for his realism. It's not surprising that the Red Badge of Courage has been adapted many times for the screen and for radio. To commemorate Veterans Day this year, we've chosen an hour-long version from a few years after World War II that stars John Agar and John Daner. There's much to be said about this great story, and happily for us, it is said in an intermission feature by the critic Mark Van Doren. Here is the May 8, 1949 NBC University Theater production of Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage. This is the NBC University Theater, bringing you a full-hour dramatization of The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane, starring John Agar as Henry Fleming. This is a war story, written by a boy who had never heard a shot fired in anger. It is a classic of American literature, psychologically sound, repertorially accurate, and poetically quite perfect. The Red Badge of Courage, the short masterpiece of Stephen Crane, whose personal legend is as exciting as his literary accomplishment. Crane was the son of a minister in Newark, New Jersey, which background he departed early to become reporter, novelist, poet, war correspondent, world traveler, an intimate friend of Joseph Conrad. He died before he was 30 in the mountains of the Black Forest of Germany. We bring you today a new and exciting radio adaptation of The Red Badge of Courage, written by Brainerd Duffield and Emerson Crocker, and starring in the role of Henry Fleming and voicing the introspective thoughts of that young soldier, Mr. John Agar. <laughs> retiring fogs revealed an army stretched out on the hills, resting. A river lay at the army's feet, and across it one could see the red, eye-like gleam of hostile campfires. As the landscape changed from brown to green, the army awakened and began to tremble with eagerness at the noise of rumors, rumors of war and battle soon to come. Gosh, it's cold. You're lying on your bunk, Henry Fleming. Watching, listening, waiting for the word that's bound to come. You've been marched and drilled and reviewed. Surely there will be a battle soon. Look, here comes a soldier with news in his eye. Boys, boys, I just heard something. I heard some fellers talking. We're going to move tomorrow, sure. We're going way up the river, cut across, and come around in behind them. It's a lie, Jim Conklin. 
I don't believe the darned old army's ever going to move. I got ready to move eight times in the last two weeks, and we ain't moved yet. Is it true, Jim? Are we going to move? Well, Henry, that's what I just told you. Oh, what you talking about? You don't know everything in the world, do you? I didn't say I knew everything in the world. Going to be a battle, sure, is there, Jim? Of course there is. Of course there is. Now, you just wait until tomorrow, Henry, and you'll see one of the biggest battles ever was. Now, you just wait. So we're going to fight at last. So at last, you're going to fight, Henry Fleming. Tomorrow, there will be a battle, and you'll be in it. All your life, you've dreamed of battles. You've seen yourself in visions, performing deeds of glory. You've read of marches and campaigns, and longed to be a part of it. All your life. Remember that day back home. Ma, I want to enlist. We've been all over that, son. I need you on the farm. Here, chick, 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 chick. Oh, but Ma, everyone's going. They're all going. Men are, yes. You're just a boy. Time enough for men's foolishness later on. Oh, but Ma, I, I want to go. Here, chick, 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 chick. Now, Henry, don't you be a fool. Every day you read the papers and heard the gossip of the village. And every day the winds carried you the clangoring of the church bells, telling the news of some great victory. They were ringing that day when you came home. Your mother had been milking the brindle cow, remember? You waited in the kitchen till you heard her step. You'd planned a little speech, and then the chance didn't come to use it after all. Ma, I've enlisted. <sighs> Lord's will be done, Henry. Seemed like, like I had to do it. I'll go and pack your bundle for you, son. Then later in the dooryard, it was time to say goodbye. It wasn't quite the way you'd pictured it would be. She didn't seem to understand what a glorious thing it was to be a soldier and march away to war. Now you watch out, Henry, and take good care of yourself. Don't go thinking that you can lick the whole rebel army, because you can't. You're just one little feller amongst a whole lot of others. I, I know that, Ma. Now I've knit you eight pairs of socks, and I've put in all your best shirts, because I want my boy to be just as warm and comfortable as anybody in the army. Whenever you get holes in them, I want you to send them right away back to me so I can darn them. Yes, Ma, I will. And uh, I don't want you to ever do anything, Henry, that, that you'd be ashamed to let me know. Just think as if I was uh, watching you. If you keep that in your mind always, I guess you'll come out about right. Ma, uh, I guess I, I better get going. I, I don't know what else to, to say to you, child. Settin' that you must never do no shirking on my account. If so be a time comes when when you have to be killed or do a mean thing. Why, Henry, don't think of anything settin' what's right. Because there's many a woman has to bear up against such things these days. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Lord will take care of us all. All right, Ma. Goodbye. Uh, uh, put a cup of blackberry jam with your bundle, son, because I know you like it, above all things. Goodbye, Henry. Watch out. Be a good boy. When you look back, you notice she was crying. Her face was stained with tears. And it, it made you feel ashamed. And now, here you are. The time has come at last. And there will be a battle. And now you know. You're afraid. Afraid that when the battle comes, you'll want to run away. Well, you fellas can believe me or not, just as you like. Didn't the cavalry all start this morning? The regiment's got orders, too. A feller what was down to headquarters told me a little while ago. They're raising blazes all over camp. Anybody can see that. Huh. Shucks. Jim. Huh? What do you want, Henry? How, how do you think the regiment will do? You, you think any of the boys will up and run? Think they'll run away? Oh, maybe a few of them run. Especially when they first goes under fire. Of course, it might happen that the whole kitten caboodle might start and run if some big fight can come first off. Then again, they might stay, fight like fury. You, you think they will? Well, they call the regiment greenhorns and fresh fish and everything, but the boys come a good stock. Most of them will fight like sin after they once get shooting. Did, did, do you ever think that you might run yourself, Jim? Mm-hmm. I thought it might get too hot for Jim Conklin, some of them scrimmages, but... If everybody was a standing and fighting, well, I'd stand and fight. But Jiminy, I would. I'll bet on it. Would you, Jim? But you, Henry Fleming, you're not so sure. You lie on your bunk wondering about it. A panic fear grows in your mind. In the blood and blaze of danger, those legs of yours could run away and disgrace you everlastingly. You reproach and despise yourself because you're so afraid. You don't feel like a hero anymore. What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me? In the gloom before the break of day, the uniforms glowed deep purple. From off in the darkness came a trampling of feet. And a moment later, the regiment went swinging off into the black. The air was heavy and cold with dew. The wet grass marched upon rustled like silk. The men stumbled along, muttering, wondering, cursing. Until at last, the sun struck full upon the earth. Two thin black columns were climbing the brow of the hill like two serpents crawling from the cavern of the night. Hey, fellas, what regiment is that? Why, that's the Greenhorns. Ain't you heard? That's the new regiment. Hi! Fresh fish! Fresh fish marched all day, and at nightfall the columns broke into regimental pieces. Tents sprang up like strange plants. Campfires like red, peculiar blossoms dotted the night. The lighted moon hung in a treetop. You have wandered a little distance from the others to be alone, to lie down in the grass. The liquid stillness of the night, the soft wind, the whole mood is in sympathy with you. 
The night takes pity on you, Henry. For the first time, you long to be home again. Perhaps your mother was right after all. You are different from the others. You're just a boy. No wonder you're afraid. You weren't cut out to be a soldier. Hello, Henry. Uh, Hello, you? Wilson. What are you doing out here? Oh, just, just thinking. Oh, you're looking thundering peaked, boy. What's ailing you? Oh, oh, nothing. Nothing to be getting blue about. We got them now. They've been licking our side up to now, but this time... This time we'll lick them good. Gee, Rod, we're really going to thump them this time. How, how do you know you won't run when the time comes? Me run? <laughs> ain't likely. Shucks. You ain't the bravest man in the world, are you? No, I ain't. Didn't say I was. Said I'm going to do my share, that's what I said. Who are you, anyhow? You talk like you was Napoleon Bonaparte. Heck, I'm going back to camp. Don't know what's come over you, Henry Fleming. Think you're so all-fired smart. Go on back there, then. I don't care. You didn't mean to make him mad. What's the matter? How brave are you? What are you watching for there in the darkness? What are you listening for? Why should you be trembling? Here in the thick darkness you lie, listening, shivering, sick with fear. Oh, I'm scared. Gosh, I'm scared. In the gray dawn, the men were shaken to their feet. Still half asleep, they found themselves hustling, running, panting through the woods. What the hell should you, should you hurry for? Henry, where are you? Here. I'm right with you, Wilson. You just stick close to me. And Jim, there's nothing to be scared of. Listen. Oh, what's that? Hey, it's muskets. Muskets, all right. Man, did you hear them muskets? We're getting near. We're getting near to them. Why do we have to run so fast? I gotta get my breath. Up there in the shadows, the fierce-eyed enemy is lurking. You're gonna be sacrificed. It's all a trap. Can't they see? Are you the only one with eyes? Stop them. Tell them before it's too late. You there. Move along. Can't you see? Well, I'll be killed like pigs. Boys, listen to me. Let me get up in the ranks there. Yes, sir, but... Get back there. Move, I said. Yes, sir. I am. Don't mind him. He doesn't understand. No one knows but you. You didn't want to fight. And now they want to see you slaughtered. Hear that? Artillery. Artillery. All right, you men. Just follow me. What are y'all jumping for? That battle's most five miles away. We got to walk before we get there. Come on, this way. Let's go. The regiment slid down a bank and wallowed through a stream. They floundered up the other side and into a clump of woods. The men dug in, and they were moved, and they dug in again and again. They marched about from place to place. But when they halted for their noonday meal, the guns seemed far away. There they rested, while the men of the new regiment watched and listened eagerly to the tongues of the veteran brigades, mouthing the gossip of the army, rumors that had flown like birds out of the blue. I met one of the 148th Maine boys, and he's seen a big battle over on the Turnpike Road. Killed about 5,000. 
Says one more fight such as that and the war will be over. Well, they say uh, Hannes' battery is took. It ain't either. I saw Hannes' battery off on the left not more than 15 minutes ago. Hey, you fellas hear about Bill? Some fella trod in his hand. Bill says war or no war, he'd be dumbed if he was going to have every bushwhacker in the country walking around on his hand. <laughs> so he went to the hospital disregardless of the fight. Uh, that's right. And then Bill wasn't scared either. No, sir, it wasn't that. Three fingers was crutched. The darn doctor wanted to amputate him, and Bill sure raised some rounds. <laughs> what are they laughing at over there? What can they find to laugh at? Death is everywhere. Henry. Henry, come here. Can I speak to you? Sure, Wilson. What do you want? We'll be going into battle pretty soon, and I got a feeling. Uh, I just got a feeling it'll be my first one and my last. Well, what do you, what do you mean? Well, something tells me I, I'm a goner the first time, and, and I want you to take these here things to send to my folks. It's letters and papers. Oh, on... Wilson, you're just plumb crazy. Mm, I'm scared, and I can't help it. I, I wouldn't tell that to Jim or, or everyone. Here, you just take them, Henry. I'll give them here. If anything should happen, I promise... Oh, thank you, Henry. You're my friend. Best friend I got, Henry. Wilson, I'm... I, I want to tell you. I I'm scared, too. There, I I'm glad I told you. See, you're, you're not the only one who's scared. All right, men. Battle formation. All in. Good luck, Henry. Good luck. And thank you, Henry. Forward. Forward. brigade formed in line of battle and advanced slowly through the trees. Soon they came to some little fields, girted and squeezed by the forest. They halted at the fringe of the grove and saw the dark battle lines spread out along the sun-struck clearing that gleamed orange color. The grass and tree trunks wove a gentle fabric of softened greens and browns. A flag fluttered. It looked to be the wrong place for a battlefield. The time has come, Henry Fleming. The landscape lies before you like a threat. That house in the deserted field looks evil to you. The shadows beyond the wood are frightening. It's much too calm. I, I wish they'd get it over with. I wish they'd get it over. Now is the time for waiting. And what will you remember? The village street at home. And that circus par parade that day last spring. Remember how you stood there, a thrillful boy, to see the dingy lady on the white horse and the band in its faded tinsel chariot? Oh, it was beautiful to see. smoke, and the sweat was getting in my eyes. My rifle got so hot it burned my fingers. Look, my hands got to shake. I know it. And didn't your eardrums like a crack wide open? Well, we held them back, didn't we? Hey, where's Jim Conklin gone? Jim? 
Why, why he was standing right here. When the fight begun, I seen him. You don't suppose he got hit to you, Henry? Well, lots of boys got hit. But some, I guess, got killed. I wonder if he got scared and run away. Him? After all the talking that he done? I'll bet you. I'll bet he run away. You didn't run, though, did you, Henry? You stood fast and didn't run. Listen to the cannon from the hillside. They're fighting over there, and over there, and over there. Look at the sky. Just look at that blue, pure sky. And the sun gleaming on the trees and fields. Doesn't it seem strange that all the world can turn to gold in the midst of all this devilment? Well, it's over, Henry. And you're still alive. You're braver than you thought. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, say, this here's too much. Well, we ain't never gonna stand a second charge. I didn't come here to fight the whole dang rebel army. There was still Smithers who tried on my hand instead of somebody treading on his, and I'd be out of here. What do they take us for? Why don't they send support? Ready, boys. They're coming in again. Oh, no. Oh, no. Please, God, no. Firing ripped along the regimental line. Level sheets of flame burst up in clouds of smoke that tossed and tumbled near the ground. And through the smoke, the enemy came running, howling, screaming like an onslaught of dragons. This was the monster, the red animal, war, the blood-swollen guards. Run, Henry, before it's too late. Throw down your rifle and run. Someone's looking at you. No one will stop you. Throw down your gun or, or be destroyed. Yes, I will. I will. I will. You're running now. Don't be ashamed. Run. Don't look back. Death is behind you. His knife is at your shoulder blades. Run. Your rifle's gone. Your cap is gone. Your coat is bulging in the wind. Run like a blind man, plunging, falling, beating your way deep, deep into the wood. You're safe now, Henry. The battle's far behind. You needn't run so fast. You're all alone. Are you the only one that ran? Why didn't the others run away? Fools. Stupid machine-like fools. You pity them. A man's a fool who doesn't run from danger. Stop. You are here alone in the cathedral light of the forest. You are the only coward. The only one who ran away. And here you stand beneath the high-arched branches. It's beautiful. It's like a chapel here. Look out! You're being looked at by a dead man. Sitting with his back against a tree. His uniform, once blue, has now faded to melancholy green. Those eyes staring at you have turned fish-belly white. The mouth is open. The wind raises the tawny beard as if a hand were stroking it. Why do you stare into those liquid eyes? He cannot answer your question. Don't look at me. I couldn't help it. I never meant to run away. No voice will come from that dead throat to answer you. Go away. The thing will not pursue you. Softly, the trees began to sing a hymn of twilight. The sun sank, 
till slanting rays of bronze struck the forest. There was silence, save for the chanted chorus of the trees. And yet now and again upon this stillness, a crimson roar came from the distance. The voice of cannon fire shook the pines. The battle, like the grinding of some terrible machine, went on producing corpses. You have come to a narrow road, and through the glimmering dust, you see the blood-stained crowd of wounded men streaming to the rear. One of them has a shoe full of blood and hops like a schoolboy in a game. Another man is being carried, full of anger at his wound. Don't struggle, so, you fools. You think my leg is made of iron? No, John. If you can't carry me decent, put me down. Let somebody else do it. Another is a tattered man, dusty and powder-stained. His head is bound up with a blood-soaked rag. His arm is bleeding, too, and dangles like a broken glove. Fall in and march beside this man. Hear what he has to say. Join the crowd and march among the wounded. It was a pretty good fight, wasn't it, boy? What you say? It was a pretty good fight, wasn't it? Yes. Learn me if I ever see fellas fight so. Laws, how they did fight. I knowed the boys do it once they got square at it. They're fighters, they Let them fellas by. They'll let them by. Like to run us wounded down, them fellas. Who are you with, boy? What regiment? 304th New York. I'm with the 148th Maine myself. But we was all there together, weren't we? We showed them, didn't we? Sure, sure we did. I was talking cross pickets with a boy from Georgia once. That boy, he says, your fellas will all run like Tophet when once they hear a gun, he says. Maybe they will, I says, but I don't believe none of it, I says. <laughs> well, they didn't run today, did they? Hey, boy? I reckon not. No, sir. They fit and fit and fit. Where are you wounded, boy? What? Where'd they wound you, boy? Is it very bad? You walk by yourself, old fellow. I don't want to talk to you. You let me be. That's right. Get away from him. He mustn't know. You have no place in this mob of bleeding men. You envy them. You wish you, too, had a wound. A red badge of courage like the rest. Who's this? Beside you now, there stalks a man. Already the gray seal of death is on his face. He stalks like the specter of a soldier. His eyes burning into the unknown. Now, now look again. Something in the, in the gesture of the man... The wax-like face makes you start. You know him. Jim. Is it you? Jim Conklin. Oh. Hello, Henry. Oh, Jim, I, I hardly knew you. Where you been, Henry? I thought maybe you got keeled over. I was worrying him about you a good deal. Oh, Jim. Here, l- l- let me help you walk along. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was back there, Henry... Oh, what a circus. Majimini got shot. Yep, Majimini got shot back there. What can I do? What can I do to help you, Jim? Ain't there anything? I'll tell you what I'm afraid of, Henry. I'm afraid I'll fall down. And you know them horses galloping, them dumb artillery wagons. 
they like does not run right over me. I'll take care of you, Jim. I, I swear I will. Will you, Henry? Because that's what I'm afraid yes, of. Yes, I tell you, I'll take I care of you, I was always Jim. a good friend, Joe, wasn't I, Henry? Always been a pretty good fellow, ain't I? Ain't much task, is it, just to pull me out of the road so I won't get troubled? I'd do it for you, wouldn't I, Henry? Sure you would, Jim. Here, here, hang on to me. Give me your arm. No! No, I can walk by myself. Don't touch me. Leave me be. Jim, where are you going to? Where are you going? You'd better take your friend out in the way, boy. There's a battery coming hellity whoop down the road and he'll get run over. He's a goner anyhow in about five minutes, poor fella. You can see that in his face. Jim, don't go so fast. What are you walking so fast for? Leave me be. Leave me be, I tell you. Where the blazes does he get his strength from? Jim, Jim, wait for me. What, what is that, Henry? There's a battery coming through. Let's get off into the field. Into the field. Don't follow me. Don't Look here. He's running out there. Jim, what are you doing? What makes you do this way? You'll hurt yourself. Wait up. No. 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 Don't touch me. You two fellas, stand away from me. Just don't come near me no more. Leave him, son. Leave him stand by himself, boy. Oh, Jim. I- I'm sorry for what's happening. Just don't no one touch me. I'm where I got to be. You watch him, standing there motionless in this open field. He holds himself erect. His hands, cake red and black with blood, hang at his side. He is waiting with patience for something he's come to meet. He's at the rendezvous. This is the place. Leave him be. Jim! stares into the sky. His tall figure stretches to its fullest height and swings forward, slow and straight. He twists. His shoulder strikes the ground. Oh, no. No, no. Go closer. Gaze at that face-like face. The teeth show in a laugh. The flap of the jacket falls away. It's, o- it's as though his side were chewed by wolves. Jim turn now with sudden livid rage. Clench your fist and shake it at the battlefield. War! War! (laughs) The red sun was pasted in the sky like a wafer. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is bringing you John Agar in a radio version of The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. This play is part of a series devoted to the classic novels of Anglo-American literature. If you are interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, Mr. Mark Van Doren, the noted author and critic, speaking from New York. Here is Mark Van Doren. The Red Badge of Courage is a modern novel in that it has no plot and no characters. It has action for it deals with the battle, and by the same token it is full of men, a few of whom we see at painfully close range. But its hero, Henry Fleming, never becomes known to us as more 
than an obscure northern boy who has been caught like thousands of his kind in the storm of civil war. We are not told where he came from or what his past had been, just as we are given no vision of his future after war is done. So with his good friend Wilson, whose first name we never hear, and so with Jim Conklin, the tall soldier who takes more time to die than any man in his condition should. His side, says the author, looked as if it had been chewed by wolves. The author, Stephen Crane, published this book in 1895 when he was 24. It had been written still earlier than that by a brilliant young man who himself was to die at 30. It was the product of no direct experience with war. Crane had merely heard old soldiers talk, had read all he could find about the great battles of 30 years ago, and had studied Tolstoy, the first novelist who ever presented war entirely in terms of its confused effect in the minds of individuals. Crane's only interest is in the successive states of Henry Fleming's consciousness. His fear that he will be afraid, his being afraid when the time comes, and all the later forms of his real or imagined courage. The battle that fills the book is present to the reader only as it is present to the hero in a series of thoughts and impressions, some of which are like photographs and some of which are like modern paintings, broken in line and color. The Red Badge of Courage, then, is not so much a novel as it is a study of one emotion, terror, in a being neither individualized nor distinguished. Henry Fleming is a member of the mass, seen with miraculous clarity in the midst of the only experience modern humanity has in common. If it was not so clear in 1895 that this would be the case, 50 years have proved Stephen Crane a prophet. In his masterpiece, he anticipated all subsequent wars and all subsequent treatments of them. Their true terror lies in what they do to unknown soldiers like Henry Fleming. Yet Henry Fleming is not unknown, thanks to the genius of his creator. Neither in consequence are the lives and deaths of millions like him. They live and die again in the brilliant, pathetic pages of this blood-stained book. Thank you, Mr. Van Doren. The red sun was pasted in the sky like a wafer. You stand there in the empty battlefield, you and the tattered soldier, and look at where Jim Cockman lies. I, I never saw a man fall dead before. He was a dandy for nerve now, wasn't he? A regular dandy for nerve. Y yes, he was, he was. Ah, but look here, boy. He's up and gone, and we might as well look out for old number one. He's all right here. Nobody won't bother him. I know. Besides, I... I ain't enjoying any too great health myself right now. Oh, no, it won't happen. Not not again. Not to you, too. Here, boy, here, just hold my arm. I, I'm commencing to feel pretty bad. Oh, you mustn't. Now, now, now look oh, at here. I, I, I ain't going to die. No, sir. I can't. Too many folks depending. You'd ought to see the swad of children that I got and all like that. We better get away. I don't much like it here. Help me along then, young fella. Come on, we gotta hurry. Can't you step along no faster? I don't know as I can. 
I'll try, though. You, you're looking pretty peaked yourself, young fella. I bet you've got a worse one than you think. Where'd they wound you, boy? Where'd you hurt? It ain't none of your goldang business where I'm hurt. You just keep moving. Oh, I don't mean no harm in asking, boys. Just you'd ought to take care of your hurt. Don't do to let such things go. Might be inside mostly, and them kind plays thunder. Does it hurt you bad? I said, don't bother me. Oh, Lord knows I don't want to bother nobody. I've got enough hurts of my own to tend to. Was it your first fight today, boy? Yes. Come on. Was you scared out there in the battle? Scared? Of course I wasn't. Why should I be scared? Well, I guess I was in my first battle. Pretty well scared sometimes. There was an awful lot of noise, you know. I, I thought the whole sky was falling down. You bet I was scared. What do you have to tell me that? The trouble was, I, I thought they was all shooting at me. Yes, sir, I thought every man in the other army was aiming at me in particular. Of course, I got used to it, but first time off, I was pretty well scared. Look, I ain't got no time to listen to all your foolishness. Talking about your wounds and hurts and being scared. If you can't walk no faster, I'm going on and leave you. I'm going by myself. No, no. Now, look here, boy. Don't do that, young fella. I, I can't keep up to you. What ails you, young fella? You ain't going away and leave me. I won't have it. You mustn't. You mustn't. I'm going. You'll get on better by yourself. No, stay with me. Stay with me, please. I'm all alone. Stop grabbing him a sleeve, you old. I'm getting away from here. Boy, please. Don't go. Wait. Come back. He's going to die the way the other did. Better get away from him. You can't stand to see that happening again. Lord, come back. Come back. The furnace roar of battle grew ever louder. The roads were a crying mass of wagons, teams, and men. Fear was sweeping them along. The cracking whips bit deep. The horses plunged and tugged. The fight was lost. The army, blinded by the overhanging night, stunned and helpless, fell back to lick its wounds. Now you're in the midst of them, in the heedless throng of the walking, the riding, the running, the limping. Where you running? Why? Why? There ain't no reason, kid. The lines broke. You all gone crazy. Stop. Wait. Tell me what's happened. Get out of my way, boy. Don't stand in my way. Let go of me. No. Tell me what's happened. Tell me. Boy, if you don't want me to crack you with this musket, stand aside. Where'd the line break? Tell me. You let go of me. No. Turn you boy. Oh. You're on the ground. Your head is thundering with pain. You lurch along in the grass on your hands and knees. You feel the wet blood on your brow. Hey, you seem to be in a bad way, boy. Oh. Here, let me have your arm. Here, that's the way. On your feet now. 
There. Thanks. I, I... Oh, I see you ain't wounded bad. Looks like the bullet only grazed you. Just like somebody hit you with a club. Wounded? Sure you're wounded, boy. Now just get your arm around my neck and we'll be hiking. Looks like the army's left us way behind. <laughs> what regiment you with? 304th New York. What's he? 304th New York. Yep, I guess they got their share of fighting, too. By dad, I give myself up for dead a dozen times. They was a shooting here and a hollering there. Couldn't tell which side was which. The most mixed up darn thing I ever seen. Easy there. Oh, I'm all right. I, I just slipped. How'd you get way over here? Your regiment was fighting in the center. Ah, don't worry, though. I'll get you back to it. Oh, don't want to go back. I, I can't go back. Can't go back. Why? I've lost my rifle. I, I, I lost oh, it. Oh, shucks, boy. They'll get you another. You can start all over. No, no. <laughs> I don't worry, boy. I'll get you back. It takes me half the night. Well, there you are, boy. There's your regiment. See that fire over in the hollow? You think you can make it on your own from, from here? Yeah, I see it. Sure, I can make it. Well, I'll be heading back. Want to find my crowd for midnight if I can. Good luck to you, boy. Well, thanks. I, I want to tell you, thanks. Goodbye. There's no turning back now. How they will laugh at you. How they will jeer. The runaways come home. Here's Henry Fleming, the celebrated coward. Fired one shot, then ran away. Oh! Oh, who goes there? Henry Fleming. Is, is this the 304th? Fleming? That's you, Henry? Oh. Hello, Wilson. Uh, you on picket guard? Yes, it's me. Henry. Oh, by ginger, I'm glad to see you. I give you up for a goner. I thought you was dead for sure. Uh, I, I've been all over. W way over yonder. Terrible fighting over there. And you was in it, Henry. I, I got separated from the regiment, but I, I was fighting. I never seen such fighting. Gosh, Henry, let me see your head. They wounded you. There's blood all over you. Why don't you tell me first? Hold on a minute. We got to get you tended to. Who are you talking to? It's Fleming, sir. He's come back and he's been wounded, too. Fleming? I give you up for dead two hours ago. Where was you? Way over yonder. I, I got separated. Half the fellas coming back just skedaddled when they heard the guns. But I can see you've been fighting, Fleming. Does it hurt like thunder, Henry? Sure it hurts. Hurts a plenty. Wilson, you're relieved. You take him back and see his wound is dressed and put him to sleep in a blanket. I'm glad to see we got one fighter in the outfit. Uh, here, Henry. Me straighten that bandage. The ball just grazed you. Raised a queer lump, but it must have stopped bleeding a long time ago. It did? Sure does hurt, though. How's the bandage now? Feel good? Sure. In the morning, you'll most like feel that a number 10 hat won't fit you. Uh, sure good to be back with my own regiment again. You just rest easy now, Henry. You've been as brave as anyone, and you need to get some rest. Thank you, Wilson. Ah, forget it. 
I know I'm clumsy like a blacksmith when it comes to taking care of sick folks, and you never squeaked once. You're plenty brave, Henry. Most soldiers would have went to the hospital and never come back at all. Not me. I brought you my canteen full of coffee. Just drink it all up if you like. Here, now, get over by the fire. That blanket will keep out the cold, I reckon. Hold on. Where are you going to sleep? I, I got your blanket. What are you going to use? I'll be right here. Now shut up and go to sleep. Don't be making a fool of yourself. You need it more than I do. about you, the soldiers lying in death-like slumber. The fire crackles like music, and you feel warm and good. The last sound that you can hear is the far-off howling of a dog, a lonely sound. You lie there, half asleep, half dreaming. I don't want you to ever do anything, Henry, that you'd be ashamed to tell me. Just think as if I was a-watching you. You keep that in your mind always. Guess you'll come out about right. I don't know what else to say to you, sir. Well, if a whole lot of the boys started to run, I suppose I'd run. And once I started, I'd run like the devil. But if everybody was a-standing and a-fighting, I'd stand and fight. I bet I would. I'm scared and I can't help it. I wouldn't tell that to everyone, but I'm scared. My first battle, there was an awful lot of noise, you know. I, I thought the sky was falling down. I thought the whole world was coming to an end. Oh, I was scared, all right. Don't do a thing you'd ever be ashamed of, son. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. I don't want you to touch me. Where are you wounded, boy? Does it hurt you bad? Where are you wounded? Come back. Come back. Oh, no. Oh, please. I didn't mean to run away. No, no, no. Henry. Henry. Here, Henry, wake up. Oh, you've been having bad dreams, boy. Now, just take it easy. Just get some rest. Oh, thank you, Wilson. You're a good fellow. You're a dandy. Oh, I didn't tell you, did I? Jim Conklin's dead. Mm. I, I seen him die. I forgot to say. Is he? Jim Conklin? I see him. Shot in the side he was. You don't say. Oh, Jim, poor cuss. Yeah. Oh, uh, Henry. Yeah? I... I guess you might as well... Give me back the packet and letters and things I gave you to keep for me to send my folks. Oh, oh sure. They're here in my pocket. Here. Thanks, Henry. Oh, that's all right. Well, good night. you feel this morning? Oh, pretty bad. My head feels like it's swollen up like a melon. I was hoping you'd feel better. Oh, I, I feel better, all right. Thanks for everything you did for me, Wilson. Oh, I want nothing. Here, I brought you some breakfast. Thanks. Say, thanks. There's a battle going on, I guess. Mm, over beyond the hill. They'll probably send us up there soon enough. What do you think our chances are, Henry? Think we can wallop them? 
Don't you? I don't know. I hope so, Henry. You'd have sure have changed, you know. A week ago, you'd have been bragging that you could have licked him by yourself. I guess I was a pretty big fool back in them days. It was just last week. Yeah. Henry, I've changed since then, I guess. He'd have offered to take on the whole kit and caboodle. The war can teach a man a lot of things. Here, let me fix that bandage. It's slipped down all around your ears. Yep, I was a pretty big fool. Hey, gosh darn it. Go slow. You act like you was nailing down a carpet. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Look, don't, don't mind my hollering. You're, you're a real good friend. We'll show them today, won't we, Henry? We'll give them blazes. Let's go fill up our canteens down to the brook. All right. They say we got them rebels in a pretty tight box. We got them just about where we want them. That's what they say. Well, we handled them rough enough yesterday, and that's for sure. Oh, we'll give them blazes. Wait and see. Water sure tastes good. Mm, fill up your canteen, Henry. Be your last chance today. General Pritchett. Yes, sir. Who's that? It's the old general himself. Can't see us, can they? Reckon not. Yes, General. The enemy have taken up positions in the River Grove. I've got to drive them out of here. What troops can you spare? Well, I've had to order in the 12th. I really haven't any, but there's the 304th. Hey, that's us. They're the Greenhorn Regiment. The poorest outfit I got. Fight like a bunch of mule drivers. But I'll send them in if you say so, sir. Call us mule drivers. Well, get ready then. I'll give you word when to start them. Yes, sir. Uh, Colonel, I don't believe many of your mule drivers will get back alive, but we'll do what we can to support them. Mule drivers, are we? Wilson, where the devil you been to? You kept the whole regiment waiting. We're going to charge. Huh? We're going to charge. Huh? How do you know? As sure as shooting, I tell you. He ain't lying. We, we heard him give the order. Who? The old general himself. Great Jerusalem. And the colonel says we was a bunch of mule drivers. But the general, he says, send them. Oh, Lordy, we'll all be swallowed out. Come on, men. All in. We're going to march. regiment marched to a line of rifle pits along the line of woods. Before them was a level stretch of field. And from the woods beyond, they heard the popping of the skirmishers. The day had grown more white. Until now, the sun shed its radiance upon the trees. The men waited and rolled their eyes toward the impending battle. When the signal comes, my boy, you're going to charge. This time, you'll show them you mean business. You'll show them you're not afraid. Don't run. Don't flinch, whatever happens. This is a war. A patch of grass no bigger than your yard at home. A little clump of trees where men are hiding. A flag that flutters in the wind. That is the object of the game. To get that flag. Tear it down and you'll be a hero. Now. quivered with the firing. The ground shook from the rushing of the men. Sunlight made bright twinklings of the steel. Bullets buzzed and spanged into the tree trunks. 
killed him. Come on, Wilson. We gotta get across that patch of grass. Across there, all the way. Come on, Fleming. No lag in there. Fleming, what's the matter with you? Don't be cowards, boys. Come on yourself, then. <laughs> They're ahead, flashing through the drift of smoke. You see their flag, the banner of the enemy. Seize it, Henry. You alone must rip it down. It's mine. It's mine. I'll get it. Plunge forward, clutch it, cling it, wrench it free. The color sergeant falls and turns his dead face to the ground. I got it. I got it. Boys, look, look. We licked the man. <laughs> Don't you know enough to quit when there ain't nothing to shoot at? That's time for fighter right enough. Are you all right, Henry? Oh, I feel fine. Nothing the matter, is they shooting in the air like that? By heaven, if I had a dozen wildcats like young Fleming here, I could tear the stomach out of this war in less than a week. Hey, Thunder, I bet this army will never see another regiment like us. You bet. Hey, look who's there. It's the colonel, fellas. Look. Ah, good work, Mr. Hasbrook. Thank you, sir. I never thought you could do it. Yes, sir. Anybody that says my boys ain't good fighters is just a plain fool. That's true. Oh, uh, by the way, who was the lad that got their flag? That's Fleming, sir. And he's a Jim Hickey. Hear that, Henry? You're a Jim Hickey. Oh, ah. go away. Yes, Mr. Hasbrook, he is indeed. He's a very good man to have. I saw him take that flag. Yes, sir, you bet. He and a fellow named Wilson was at the head of the charge and howling like Indians all the time. Yeah, that Wilson? Were they indeed? At the head of the regiment, huh? Well, well, those two babies. They deserve to be Major General. Yes, sir. Yes, they deserve to be Major General. (laughs) Now, Henry, you can write that to your ma. Oh, Coway. Get along, you fellas. The enemy had fallen back. The battle was all over. Now the orders came for the bluecoats to retrace their steps the way they'd come. That afternoon it rained, and the procession of victorious soldiers soon became a draggled train, despondent and muttering, marching with churning effort through thick black mud beneath an ugly sky. What are they marching us over this way for? Uh, if you ask me, I'd say we're going down here a ways, swing around and come in behind them. Ah, uh, what do you know about it? Telling me we're coming around in behind them. Well, it's over, ain't it, Henry, for a while? Yep, it's over. You're being mighty quiet, boy. What are you thinking about? Oh, nothing. God dang it. It'd have to rain today for anyhow. Rain. Jeez. But you don't mind the rain, do you, Henry Fleming? Your shame is gone and your fear. And that's the thing that counts. You feel a sense of quiet manhood, of strong and sturdy blood that's flowing in your veins. You know that you won't flinch again or ever run from danger. You've been out to touch the great death and found that, after all, it is but death. You were a boy. You have become a man. Over the river, 
a splash of yellow sun came through the leaden clouds. been listening to The Red Badge of Courage, an NBC University Theater production of the Stephen Crane novel, starring John Agar as Henry Fleming. Next week at the same time, we will bring you another classic of Anglo-American literature, The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. The present semester of the NBC University Theater is devoted to the classics of Anglo-American literature from the time of Henry Fielding to that of Henry James. If you wish, you may learn more about these authors and their works by enrolling in the college-supervised courses now being offered in connection with the NBC University Theater. The University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, Washington State College, and Kansas State Teachers College have now completed their plans for offering such a course in the coming months. Thus joining the University of Louisville, whose established home study plan is already serving listeners in another area of the nation. For information, then... As to how you may enhance your knowledge through these courses, write to NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington State College, Pullman, Washington, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. of Courage was adapted for radio by Brainerd Duffield and Emerson Crocker. Our intermission commentator was Mark Van Doren. Starred as Henry Fleming was John Agar, who appeared to the courtesy of David O. Selznick, producer of Portrait of Jenny, starring Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton. Our cast included Ted Von Elts, narrator, John Daner, William Lally, Noreen Gamil, Lee Millar, Jack Lloyd, Frank Gerstel, Tom Charlesworth, Harley Bear. Your announcer, Don Stanley. The original musical score was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. The director of the NBC University Theater is Andrew C. Love. Next week, be with us again for the NBC University Theater dramatization of Joseph Conrad's enthralling short story, The Heart of Darkness, starring Brian Ahern. Likely the greatest of all American war stories, Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage in a production from the NBC University Theater in the spring of 1949. Our final salute to this year's Veterans Day that starts in just about an hour. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a safe holiday, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I 
telling me just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. It will be my delight to sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with you. Many veterans have come to rely on service dogs after sustaining physical injuries in the military. You're fine. I'm fine. The VA is still studying whether dogs help vets with cognitive disabilities and PTSD. What's the holdup? We have tons of anecdotal stories of service members saying, look, but for that dog, I would be dead today. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Join host Matt McCleskey.